0: Hey everybody, this is Sam with Wrestling Overtime. You need to come over and join us. We do breaking news updates and a brand new series called A Look Back, where we look back on past wrestlers' careers. Next up is Gorgeous George. Also coming up on Wrestling Overtime is a breakdown of the WWE storylines going into SummerSlam. And of course, we're going to do reviews on how well Fighter Fest versus Great American Bash actually went. Now, you can join our community on our Wrestling Overtime Facebook page and Twitter page. Make sure to subscribe to Wrestling Overtime to hear where Tesser Blanchard goes. Remember, I'm always working overtime for you.
1: Ah, it's time to relax. You know what that means. Glass of wine, your favorite easy chair, and of course, this compact disc playing on your home stereo. So go on and indulge yourself that's right kick off your shoes put your feet up lean back and just enjoy the melodies after all music soothes even the savage beast
2: Walking arenas, I'm shutting it down and I'm raising the bar. Y'all look like the kind that get lost in the shuffle, just playing the part. I belong in the light. Y'all can just stay in the dark. Funny how every time they know who we are, but we say who we are. I'ma take care of the light work and I'ma make them fans go loco. Black and yellow in the logo. I got the game in the chokehold. Music drops, everybody puts their hands up like the nay nay. Y'all know just what they say. Adam Cole, baby. They will not leave any doubt in your mind This the moment that they waited to have They'll knock you out with a punch of a kick of a little bit of both combo with a dab I am Roddy with the flow yeah. I am Bobby when I'm bold yeah. I'm a Roddy with the gold yeah. Every title I'ma hold However yeah. this hard time you better recognize, recognize. My lyrics bring a house down with a record lies yeah. I keep moving, I can prove it Let me show you how I do this Can't refute it, I ain't losing This flow is undisputed Boom, Boom. Yeah. Stay with
0: Hello ladies and mostly gentlemen, my name you complained for silent lame, still remains David K. Martin, and welcome to the first, if not last, MLW History Bonus Episode, brought to you by LOPForums.com or WrestlingHeadlines.com. That's right y'all, I sold out, and if you want to buy into more free content, please check out the good folks over at WrestlingHeadlines.com slash podcast to get your dose of independent primetime audio with such marquee shows like our LOP flagship, LOP Radio, and Aftershock hosted by Matthew Mayer, our lord and savior, The Implications. But that's not to take anything away from our world famous all night long wrestling podcast, WWF, The Legacy Series, and your mama's favorite program, Kingdom of Honor. There's a conversation for anyone to interact in or be a part of. Whenever you're ready, join on in the conversation. Now if you want me to get straight into it, I got timestamps in the description down below. However, if I may provide some context before we get into this, I myself have been an occasional writer for LOP forums going back to like 2014 or 2015. But I was just Doing some what culture style pro uh columns in the beginning it wasn't until like 2017 at best that i was actually trying to write something more thought-provoking than just compile stats and useless facts and slap uh <laughs> an article sticker on them hell i don't expect anyone to remember but i was the dude reviewing all those bound for glory shows that were bound to be forgotten and obviously, I'm not I'm not Anne Rand or Stephen King or Robert Munch, so I wouldn't expect anyone to remember such literary works of art like November eighteenth in Pro Wrestling History. Which just fucking sucked. Or who could forget <laughs> or more like who could remember, I don't even care. Uh what well, what did I write? My birth year in pro wrestling history, where I just reviewed all of nineteen ninety-five in America. And even with that, I can honestly say, as proud as I felt then to have accomplished such a irrelevant goal as that, in the years since, I've been watching class New Japan, All Japan Women's, AJPW, UWFI, AAA, and CMLL so I can humbly admit whatever that was was just some ECW mark bullshit. But with all that time being wasted, I said to myself once, self, stop fucking around. <laughs> and so I did. It was literally that simple. And then I embarked on this side quest to do this ungodly format one more time. Only this time, I was going all out on this bitch, and I was going to be covering the concept of every significant story, every historical match, and every classic card on July 1st, because that is the day of our Lord. <laughs> mind you this wasn't recently this was probably about two years ago coming up because what i thought would take me like a week at best in june of 2018 ended up becoming another multi-month project for fuck's sakes and the buzz killer for myself was that lop's columns forum actually crashed one fateful summer day as some of you may remember so everybody just as insignificant as myself lost all of our accounts and all of our archives all of our history all of our work and for me losing all those years of personal growth and development as a writer and seeing how my thoughts were processing and how my emotions towards people morals and subjects were changing or evolving over time it kind of depressed me that all that shit was gone and i'm someone who's lost his entire life to an apartment fire so sentimentality isn't something that i invest in unless i feel absolutely certain i'm not going to lose what i cherish so with all that being said had it not been for this podcast all these notes sitting next to me we would have just continued to lie dormant on top of my fridge which just for the record i did wipe down my fridge do not give me shit, do not judge me, and do not email me at mapleleafpod at <laughs> at mapleleafpod at gmail.com with any of that bullshit, okay? Now, with all that out of the way, I need to state that, yes, this is an original concept that I did come up with years ago. However, in the time that I've given up on being creative, I began listening to other podcasts beyond the confines of, uh, LOP's blog talk, radio network, RIP. And there's a guy named Don Tony from the DTKC show who literally did a show in the past year and a half called TWIWH, or, uh, This Week in Wrestling History. I can't believe I remember the initials first uh they had they he had 52 episodes one per week of the year and it is incredibly well done and very fucking entertaining i've listened to all the shows and and i admittedly respect all the work that don tony did and yes it does disappoint me that somebody else did what i wanted to do 10 times better and yes that does directly influence my show today however the true motivating inspiration of this program came from eggshells pro wrestling in the tokyo dome by chris charlton I highly recommend you check out that book if you're at least above entry-level to Pyro, because it is not a New Japan exclusive history book. I just to try and give you guys an idea of what I'm striving to try for, alright? Alright, I got here 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 fucking pages of notes, people. You marks like your facts and stats? I got your fucking facts and stats right here. You ready to hop into a whole heap of shit? All right. First off, Canada Day is literally the one night of the year much like Independence Day where everyone gathers together to light off hundreds upon millions of dollars of fireworks, inhale the residual smoke and snort gunpowder. you know, all your common North American traditional festivities. So ironically, I'm not going to be covering many shows that happened in Canada because it's a day off. In fact, I remember when I first compiled this big bastard, it actually kind of pissed me off that I couldn't find any monumental footage of any Canadian or Canada Day related moments. So, this is where I'm going to begin. The largest attended event recorded for July 1st technically belongs to Pride. If you've never heard of Pride, Pride FC, in my opinion, was the most successful MMA promotion in its day. Uh, In a similar vein to UWFI against uh, All Japan and New Japan in the form of UFC, for example. Like... Pride holds this egregious record of selling out Tokyo's Olympic Stadium with K1 in a joint promotion show back in August of 2002 with uh, 91,107 in attendance. Although, according to the internet, and I will be saying that a lot today, the Olympic Stadium only maxed out 80,600 at best. So, if these motherfuckers are going to be inflating numbers and affiliating with the Yakuza, okay, they must be workers, right? <laughs> so, I'm currently reading Before a Fall by Lee Daly, and I'm looking online, but I can't find any pay-per-view buy rates for any Pride FC shows. But I figured the metrics were never publicized then. Nonetheless, Pride show in, I'm talking about is on July 1st, 2006. The critical countdown absolute card in Saitama Japan for the Saitama Super Arena that held either 36500 or Pride claiming 44608 in the building, depending on who you want to believe. That's just to give you an idea of how fucking successful Pride was at the time, but just keep in mind, this was to determine the finalists for the 2006 Open Grand Prix. This wasn't even the fucking finals. Like, Pride had already had a video game on PS2 years before UFC did back in 2003, and only 13 of Pride's 68 events were attended by less than 10,000 spectators. Less than. And even then, most of those shows were still selling out the smaller venues like Hurricane Hall. Which is so funny because what killed them was actually back in April of this year, where a Japanese weekly news magazine would drop a series of articles depicting all these allegations of Yakuza affiliation going back to Pride's inception, and how they actually had ties to Antonio Inoki and Inoki's uh, uh, affiliates and acquaintances. Like, despite this happening in April, And here we are in July, the company wouldn't ultimately fall apart until 8 or 10 months after the Critical Countdown Absolute took place, and then obviously it would go out of business sometime shortly thereafter. Alright, so all in all, these are the facts you need to know before I go chronologically throughout history. Cue the music! There 700 cards and events that took place on July 1st, dating back as early as 1896 with fellow countryman Dan McLeod defeating John Willie in a freelance catch style wrestling match in Chicago. This is the part where I actually get to plug my archives if you like the rundown on Dan McLeod. That's right y'all, I'm getting the hang of this. Uh, next thing you need to know is that there are 191 different championship title changes in recorded history, beginning with Cavernario Galindo defeating Tarzan Lopez for the CMLL Mexican National Light. Heavyweight Championship in 1949 ending Tarzan's near two and a half year reign and it's also being Cavernario's third and last respectively. Most recently of course will be fresh in your memory but won't register in your minds as happening on Canada Day because as earlier in this month Keith Lee defeated Adam Cole for the NXT Championship in a champion vs champion match to officially make this the year of death and double champions. Surprisingly I found only 10 10 tournaments taking place on July 1st, all of which happened after the millennium, and none of which happened in Canada, so fuck off. (laughs) Uh, Beginning with 2000 with uh, XCW, that's Extreme Championship Wrestling, holding its first and last annual Battle Box Tournament in Plano, Plano, Piano, Plano, Fuck off, it doesn't matter, it's a stupid name, Texas. Uh, a bunch of jobbers fought over a box of gimmicks, it doesn't matter. However, coincidentally in 2016, there were two different wrestling feds holding essentially the same tournament in two different countries. In 2016, Japan's Wrestle 1 promotion held its Grand Prix tournament, while CMLL held its Grand Prix International over in Mexico. And a little respect should be paid to uh, Wrestle 1 in Japan because that's a promotion that went defunct this year due to COVID. But the most recent July 1st tournament belongs to WXW the next year in 2017, holding its shortcut to the top tournament to determine the number one contender to the unified world title. The next category is a little bit fucky because I used WrestlingData.com, CageMatch.net, and ProFightDB.com, and all of these will list pay-per-views. But since pay-per-views didn't technically exist until the mid-80s, I'm inclined to consider this next category as supercards. Therefore, according to the internet, and yes, I will be saying that a lot, there are have been merely six, six supercars that have only occurred on July 1st, starting with Ricky Dozan's JPA, the original Japanese Pro Wrestling Federation. They held the 29th day of the Golden Series Tour in Kawasaki Stadium in Kawasaki, Japan. The tour begun on May 23rd and wouldn't end until July 3rd, so overall there were 31 shows held in 41 days. That is pretty goddamn grueling, isn't it? And most recently, which may be a disgrace to both pay-per-view and supercards alike, was TNA's Knockouts Knockdown back in 2015. And for those of you who actually remember the dying days of Dixieland, this was the one night only pay-per-view era that never drew a dime and was essentially done out of necessity to meet the contractual obligations of pay-per-view providers. So although this was taped on Valentine's Day of 2015, it didn't air until Canada Day, which means that none of the matches were actually congruent with the current TV product. So that is classic TNA. And finally, I have found that there have been 46 recorded televised events that have aired on July 1st. Whether they were live or taped, that is up to you to decide if they are justifiable. Nice, nice. Alright, I think the table has been set and the platter is ready to serve, but in these unprecedented times, I gotta wash my hands before handling this entree of knowledge, because y'all motherfuckers misinterpret Toker's cough for the plague. So let me just drop a record on the turntable to keep y'all preoccupied. Until we return. You are listening to Soul Wax
3: and M, Soul Wax and M. the station with the newest and hottest tracks. Welcome, this
4: <laughs> is Soul Wax and M, you're listening to Soul Wax and and M, and and M.
0: back y'all or if you're just skipping ahead now it's all good brother your download is where it counts now i understand without any sentimental feelings or background knowledge a lot of these names may mean jack shit to you so i got to remind y'all my words are not the great gospel i am just a reference guide and if you care then do your own research on some of these folks all right okay y'all monkeys in the back cue the background track and let's rewind back to 1926 because I felt nothing significantly monumental happened on July 1st before then. That's just my millennial opinion. I'm sure some German or Australian history marks may disagree, but who gives a fuck because this is my show. So let's begin with the AWA in Boston, Massachusetts at Braves Field among 10,000 fans. It was a five match card, but it's most notable for me because it featured a main event with world heavyweight champion Ed the Strangler Lewis going to a three hour draw with Joseph Tutsmont in a two out of three falls match. Now, uh, Joseph had broken away from the traditions of your Greco-Roman wrestling and actually pioneered professional wrestling as we know it by introducing arm drags and punches and suplexes and slams into the sport and redefined it from your slower paced Olympic style to something more reminiscent of wrestling school basics today. And yes, I did learn that in the book The Fall Guys by Marcus Griffin and that was before uh, Mont had linked up with Vince McMahon Sr. to form Capital Sports. Now, Ed the Strangler Lewis, his manager Billy Sandow and Mont we're actually in the midst of an American nationwide takeover at this point in time, dubbed the Goldust Trio by Marcus Griffin, and the AWA was by and large the number one wrestling promotion in the world, although Jack Hurley out of New York was booking Luthez, so it's arguable which promoter actually was sizing up wrestling's original dick measuring contest. In the future, I'll have quite a bit more to say about Toots Mon and the AWA on a later day, but if you love this crazy, shady, carny past professional wrestling, I cannot stress enough, check out The Fall Guys on Amazon. Moving on to 1932, I actually found a card from a Canadian promotion that just so happens to have occurred on Canadian soil. I mean, what are the odds? That's right, the Queensberry Athletics Club held a three-match card in Toronto for Canada's 75th birthday. Once again, I'm only covering the noteworthy, and this is noteworthy because the future owner of NWA San Francisco Booking Office, Joe Malkowitz, actually defeated Pat McGill during his temporary residency of Ontario. And trust me, in the next episode, I am covering the history of Ontario wrestling in the 20th century. Three years later, at the 71st Regiment Armory in New York City, Jack Curley Promotions contributed to Canada Today in 1935 with one of the worst shoot wrestling cards I've ever read in my fucking life. Like mind you, Jack Curley has basically been fucked over twice by the Gold Dust Trio that I mentioned earlier. The first time in 1921 when they broke the trust agreement, which was basically just a a talent exchange between the west coast and the northeast, and then after the trio actually split up with the disputes and claims over money in 1928, somehow Toots would actually realign himself with Curley. once again, fuck him over later this year in 1935. See, the first time was over physical ownership of the World Heavyweight Championship, that dates back to 1905. And the second time came about after they re-established a trust agreement, only this time that silly motherfucker Curly decided we were splitting all the profits between all the promoters, like creating a genuine precursor to the NWA. Unfortunately, he'd pass away just over one year later to this day, so I'm mean gonna just take a moment to pay respect to him by going over this shit show that he had booked then. Amongst 3,500 in attendance, Tor Johnson beat Wee Willie Davis in a 20-minute curtain jerker, (laughs) and Al Bizignano went to a 30-minute draw with Sandor Sabo, Gino Gabaldi defeated Ivan Verhora in 1338, and what turned this into a fucking dumpster fire for me was that Ernie Dusek and Hans Comfer went to another 30-minute draw. Two draws and one card fuck off, but it actually it actually gets worse because the next match between George Zaharias losing to Harry Fields via disqualification took another 13 minutes and 21 seconds out of these people's lives. After doing some cursory google searches, I am surprised to announce that I did not find a riot happening on this night. Nonetheless though, the fucking 43 minute and 48 second main event featured AWA heavyweight champion Ed Don George retaining over Ed the Strangler Lewis. What a fucking show. And would you look at that, 1936, the San Francisco Booking Office signs a match in Fresno, California, contested between Lou Thez and Harry Jacobs, with obviously Thez going over that night according to the digital history books. But now we're jumping all the way ahead in 1947, Jim Cornette's heralded NWA Mid-America's territory gave us three decent matches on this card in Nashville, Tennessee during the Nick Goulas-Roy Welch Enterprises era. Match one, Patty Mac defeats Pat McGee in an unknown amount of time. Which, if you hadn't guessed already, was one of the unwritten, reoccurring themes of today's show. Next, Mae Young wins a ladies' battle royal, which she should have been regarded as the Andre's competitor of this match, because nobody in the entire goddamn fucking world ever bothered to write down who the other women were. Hell, if it wasn't titled A Ladies' Battle Royal, I'd tell you there were midgets and Mexicans in there too, and she beat them all. <laughs> And and to my surprise, Mike Chacoma defeats the co-owner of the territory, Roy Welch. And for all y'all historians, almost exactly one year later, Mike Chacoma captured his only career championship as the AWA Tag Team Champion with a real legend in Red Roberts. So I'm amazed that Roy actually saw something in the guy. Moving forward a couple of years in 1949, finally the cast has come back to God's country because in Quebec City, Eddie Quinn's NWA territory held its own Canada Day Wrestle Festival. I mean, listen to this impeccable American booking. You want a hot opener? How about a midgets match featuring Skylo Lolo defeating Mickey Lengua? Or how about Joe DeValte and Luke Kelly tearing the house down as they went to a 30 minute time limit draw? And in the show closer, Rebel Russell defeated Salvador Cortez in my total biased, self-proclaimed barn burner of a main event. That same day, across North America, Cavernario Galindo defeated champion Tarzan Lopez for the EMLL Mexican National Light Heavyweight title in Mexico City. You already knew that. And transitioning back home, we move on to Stu Hart and Al Lohman's big time wrestling promotion in 1952, just over a year after merging into an NWA territory and changing its name from Klondike Wrestling to something a little more cliche that didn't infringe on any trademarks. Somewhere at some point in time, I'd even speculate that Herb Abrams was told this and nodded his coked out skull in approval. Taking place from Edmonton, Alberta, Mr. X defeated the six-foot-three, 268-pound Tiny Mills. Stu Hart and Pat McGill then went on to beat Francois Maquette and Bob Langevin in a tag team match. And Com Bruno defeated Dave Rule in the main event of a three-match card to celebrate Canada's 100th birthday. Rock on, man. And I'm, so- <laughs> and I'm sorry, y'all, if you're not impressed with the way things are going, I am trying so goddamn hard not to deep dive into everyone's bios and talk about the times and the wrestling scenes. I gotta hold back on all that talk about fucking gibberish for future episodes, so for now, I know everybody is aware of Stu Hart and Joe Exotic, but eventually I'm gonna do a show on Al Omen because he is an actual national treasure to not only Canadian but wrestling history as well, so for now, I'm gonna give you a one minute clip called Noah of the North about the original Tiger King, and it's on YouTube if you actually wanna see it, but I think you'll get a kick out of just listening
1: to it. new attraction outside Edmonton. A thousand acre park devoted to wildlife, most of it Canadian, though not all. The puma, sometimes called the mountain lion, is the biggest cat found in Canada. This wildlife farm was founded by a former professional wrestler, Al Oming. Fearing that many wild species might die out, he began his private zoo. He's had a lot of support and there are so many visitors, the place is self-supporting. A bobcat. Folks having a picnic wear an audience for the peacock. The animals seem to know that in Al Oming, they have a friend. He's forgotten all about wrestling. With them he's as gentle as their own mother. Pride of the collection the musk ox. Natives of the Arctic The first ones were brought here as babies. How they thrive. And what a tragedy if such wonderful animals became extinct.
0: 1954, same people, different city, Calgary, Alberta. The BTW main event that night featured the recently formed Flying Scots defeating Abe Zavonkin and Jim Henry in a tag team match. And please, for the love of God, do not give this podcast five stars on something if you haven't heard of George and Sandy Scott. Because I am so compelled to derail this motherfucker right now, right off the track. But I'm not gonna do that, because that'll all be safe for a future episode, and I'm still new to this. Like, if it wasn't for post-production purgatory, I would just love love to just banter the fuck on for a few hours. 1955 The NWA Los Angeles Territory booked a show in Santa Monica, California, simple four-match card notable because the opening match featured future up-and-coming superstar Nick Bockwinkle only ten months into the business defeating Frank Hurley, and the main event saw Playboy Buddy Rogers beating Danny McShane in a 2 out of 3 falls match via referee's decision. Nearly eight years removed from that show is the Japan Pro Wrestling Alliance card in 1962. The 27th day of the Selection Series Tag Tour happened in Toya Naka, Japan, amongst a sellout 12,000 crowd in Diamond Park for an impressive 11-match card in the early 60s. But the highlights include Mr. Chin defeating Hideo Koma in a nine-minute opener, Kentaro Ohi defeating Mitsuwaki Harai in 10:13, Kanji Anoki defeating Azeo Yoshiwara in 7:15, and to tell you the truth, I never knew he went by anything other. Than Antonio. Honestly, guys, he's an incredibly legendary, folkloric relic of wrestling history. I highly recommend you do some research on Antonio Inoki. Anyways, uh, Mammoth Suzuki defeated Duke Hoffman in 10-20. Michiaki Yoshimura and Ricky Waldo went to a 45-minute draw in a two-out-of-three-falls match after getting a fall apiece. Just a classic trope, in case you weren't wondering. <laughs> And yes, in the main event, Ricky Dozon and Toya Nobori defeated Buddy Austin and Hamilton Ontario's own Mike Sharp Sr. for the All Asia Tag Team Championships, winning a two out of three falls match in 1920. Now, Mike Sharp Sr. is better known for being the father of Iron Mike Sharp Jr. But in his heyday himself, he and his older brother Ben were a well-respected tag team in the 1940s and early 50s before Mike Sr. made himself famous as an individual singles wrestler. And as for Ricky Dozon, he would, well, you know, he would live for another year and a half before he tragically passed away in the fatal stabbing. Like, hopefully a future Dark Side of the Ring episode will come out about that, just put it out there. Moving on to 1965, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation holds a two-match event at the National Arena in Washington, D.C., featuring Dr. Jerry Graham and the Golden Terror defeating Wahoo McDaniel and Chief Big Heart in a tag match. And then in the main event, Bruno Sammartino successfully defended the WWF Championship against fellow countryman Waldo Von Erich. At this point, Bruno has already been champion for over two years into his legendary reign, and as for Canada's version of Lance Von Erich, I will eventually do an entire episode Episode on Waldo because I have quite a lot to say about the guy some good some not so good so respect the fact that I'm struggling here trying not to rant obnoxiously Also in 1965, the WWA held an event in Strelick Stadium in Bakersfield, California, and no, not the Australians, and no, not the Puerto Ricans, and no sir, not Dick the Bruiser's promotion in Indianapolis either. This was the Worldwide Wrestling Associates based out of Southern California run by the Eaton Family during this period until Cal Eaton passed away next year and his wife Eileen either gives or sells the company to her son Mike LaBelle who will go on to regain status with the NWA and rename the territory NWA Hollywood Wrestling a few years afterwards. For a future reference, Edouard Carpentier by all accounts was an absolute fucking asshole in real life, so there isn't much written about him beyond what's in Mad Dogs, midget and Screwjobs. I know this because I was told this by one of the authors themselves on Facebook. <laughs> so therefore in a future episode about Carpentier, I'm going to be using the WWA's Known history as a heavy reference guide for additional context. I'm just saying now in case anyone wants to hit up Cornet with some questions that I'm not going to be answering. Alright, uh, where the fuck was I? Right, 1965, Bakersfield Cali, Strelick Stadium, no attendance record, although I still share the Herb Abrams mindset of Ooh, a stadium, how impressive. Regardless if they drew a dime or not, like something leads me to assume that this show may not have sold out, I would suspect that the poor crowd resulted in some on-the-fly booking changes. Like, this is all speculation, because for instance, this four-match card featured Art Michalik opening with Tony Galazara to a time limit draw. Then, Mr. Moto defeats Luke Graham via countout in the next match. The Assassins retain the WWE Tag Team titles over Chief White Owl and Luis Hernandez in a 2 out of 3 falls match with a 2-0 straight victory. And the WWE World Heavyweight Champion Pedro Morales retained over The Butcher via disqualification in a 2 out of 3 falls match with a 2-1 victory. And no, as not Abdullah the Butcher, but coincidentally it was Canada's own Don the Spoiler Jardine six years into his career and long before the world famous Spoiler Incarnation. You may have seen him in some WWE documentaries walking the top ropes in the same way Undertaker did today, hence the name Old School. And trust me, I will do a future episode making a fucking great argument on why the Spoiler is one of the top 5 greatest Canadian wrestlers of all time, but for now I'll at least leave you with this. As of today, July 1st, 1965, Jardine had already won and lost the Nebraska Heavyweight Championship, the Amarillo version of the NWA North American Tag Team titles with Dutch Savage, and then even shortly after this, he'd unsuccessfully challenged fellow Canadian Gene Kanitsky for the NWA World's Championship, go back to Canada with Dutch Savage, win the NWA World Tag Titles there, and then leaving the Pacific Northwest altogether by 1967 for Fritz Von Erich's hot young upstart company Big Time Wrestling. Isn't that clever? And the rest, as they say, is history. And moving on to 1966, with World Championship Wrestling. No, not that one. Fuck off, I thought we'd been over this already. This is Jim Barnett's WCW two years established at this point, hailing from Sydney, New South Wales, Australia, selling out the 15,000 seat Sydney Stadium. Matches from that night include Ray Hefferman of the former Fabulous Kangaroos defeating George Lackey, Larry O'Day being Mitsu Arakawa by disqualification, and this is fucking weird, but I've cross-referenced this, and apparently this actually happened, as everyone is just copying and pasting the same results from somebody. In the semi-main event, Professor Toru Tanaka defeats Killer Kowalski, but then, in the main event, Killer Kowalski and Mark Lewin defeat Harley Race and Larry the Axe handing for the IWA Tag Team Titles. Like, what? the fuck if anybody listening to this just so happens to be a mark please find me footage of this send a link my way to mlhistorypod all one word on, tw- <laughs> on twitter <laughs> and if my friends are actually li- still listening to this please fuck off don't even bother don't even get me started i sold out okay fuck having beliefs they just hold you back in life anyways 1966 big time wrestling in modesto california jesus christ haven't we been over this? It's not that one. It's never the first one you think of. Ever. This is Roy Shire's promotion based out of San Francisco, and this is at the time where Shire was gaining such notoriety with this independent company going so strong that within at least two years of this show, they'll be partnered into the NWA pyramid scheme. I'm, I'm just mentioning this show because... I'm surprised that the clear-cut draw of the night was Bill Watts and Pepper Gomez defeating those blonde bastards, fucking Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens in a two out of three falls match that saw the blonde bombers getting disqualified in the one-to-one tie to give the good guys the victory. It just blows my mind because in case I have any modern non-Caucasian listeners, I should point out that Bill Watts was actually one of the faces. I know, it's hard to believe, I know. And with that, 1969, two noteworthy events that happened in North America, first being the WWF at the Conventional Hall in Atlantic City, New Jersey, featuring a six-woman tag team match that saw Tony Rose, Donna Christianello, and the fabulous Moolah defeat the team of Doris Wilson, Helen O'Connor, and goddamn Mae Young in 1969. Wow, like, how are these two always intrinsically linked? Was women's wrestling really that deprived of talent for 55 fucking years? Like, Moolah debuted at least a full 10 years after Mae Young, and yet she's the Hulk Hogan of women's professional wrestling. Unfucking believable my god. Anyways, getting back on track, George Animal Seal defeats John L. Sullivan. No Troy McClure, but you may remember him as Johnny Valiant. And in the main event, the world-famous Haystack's Calhoun. The world famous K Stacks Calhoun. The world famous Case, The world. I can't believe I can't say his fucking name. Oh! The world famous Haystacks Stax Calhoun and the lesser known Victor Rivera. How their match ended in a no contest against the Rising Suns Mitsu Arakawa and Toru Tanaka. What a fucking name. Good old 20th century stereotyping. And finally, over in Alberta, the recently rechristened Stampede Wrestling celebrates Canada Day once more with its classic July 1st card. But in all seriousness, I'm only mentioning this because the last two matches were actually highlights, the first being Dave Rule defending the NWA Canadian Heavyweight Championship against Joe Peruzovic and the NWA Stampede Wrestling North American Heavyweight Champion, Billy Robinson, retaining over Daryl Cochran to end the show. And it's only noteworthy because Dave Rule was one of the essential pillars of Stampede Wrestling going as far back as 1955. He, he won his first of eight Canadian Championship Heavyweight titles by 1959, and Stu was pretty much taking care of Dave practically till the end. And by this point, Dave was already a six-time champion and currently a year and a half into his two-year reign. So I would argue that rule was at least synonymous with the belt. And if you need any further validation, you can validate these nuts. Because like I said, everything will basically be covered in future in full episodes. And I have it written down here that Billy Robinson was also in the midst of a record-setting reign for the North American Heavyweight Championship, but that one would only be like for 225 days. However, it wouldn't be broken until 15 years later by Davey Boy Smith, who holding the belt for a year and a half. So, I just recently bought Stampede Wrestling, The History of the North American Championship by James McDermott, and it is an incredibly awesome book that puts Wikipedia to shame. I highly recommend it, and I'm just putting it out there. Like, nothing I say is sponsored content. Like, the author is in one of my Facebook groups, so I was probably one of the first to buy this book upon release. It's fucking awesome. It's just 15 bucks on Amazon, paperback only. I cannot put it over enough. And with all that, I think that concludes the first half of this show. This guy needs a smoke and some rehydration. So when I get back to you, we will wrap this shit up like Dave Chappelle after this.
4: my life. It seems that everything that you said was right. Just Lost my sight. But have you ever felt you've done your best when you were under the gun? That's right. I know I've seen this place before, but it's never been so fun. Yeah, It's never been so fun. Check it out. Here we go. I've been on the run. The shadow is a black. It's starting to
2: make sense to me. No, I oh, can't make you love oh, me. You don't you don't know me. on the run. I've been on the run, my shadow had a waste of time. I know I found a recipe for me, but I can't wouldn't make you love me. Oh no, you know I, I can't. I
4: can't. Haunted the overseas, haunted on each coast. Played them like Ebenezer, I made them see the ghost. Back from the future, Johnny, in Japanese chemo knows. Even though the street show love, try to see me grow. I often see me floating, but my shadow weighs a ton. Call it baggage, I use it all to advantage. I can't make you love me, this time it's on you. And you can't try to deny these words when they true. I'm on the run. the run, the shadow weighs a ton. you starting
5: to me.
0: Hey, you decided to stay right on, much appreciated, and for what it's worth, I'm just going to remind you guys that I haven't been, nor will I be covering everything in great detail, especially nothing I haven't seen or researched myself, so sorry to all you German historians out there thinking that some foul-mouthed Canadian was going to give a shit about wrestling in Hamburg on 1901, like, fuck that. Instead, I'll be jumping ahead to 1970 for a moment to mention Billy Robinson and Johnny Barend defeating Han Lee and Pedro Morales for the N.W.A., Hawaii Tag Team Titles at the Civic Center in Honolulu, represented by, that's right, you actually guessed it for once, 50 Estate Big Time Wrestling, for fuck's sakes, operated by Ed Francis and Lord James Bleers from 61 to 79. But Ren and Robinson's reign would end mysteriously at some unknown time, most likely due to some fucking controversy, but they'd actually go on to win the belts back on October 28th of 71, so it's all good. 1972, you remember how I started off this segment by saying Pride technically had the largest attended audience for any July 1st event? Well, for anyone that doesn't give a rat's ass about MMA, the actual largest attended pro wrestling event to date has belonged to the WWWF for nearly 50 years, S- uh, Saturday, July 1st, 1972, in a sold-out Madison Square Garden. Well, you can't hold any more than 18,000 fans in MSG, allegedly, but this show claims to have contained 19,512. So whatever you consider a sellout is seemingly an objective opinion at best. Nonetheless, uh, highlights from that show include Chief J Strongbow and Sonny Kiss. Ah oh, fuck, that Sonny King. Oh. Chief Chief Strongbow and Sonny King defeating Ernie Ladd and Professor Toru Tanaka via disqualification in a two out of three falls match. Uh, Tanaka and Mr. Fuji had just won the World Tag Team Titles four days earlier from King and Strongbow, so I'm not sure why Ernie Ladd replaced Fuji in this match. And unless it's on the network, I'm not even sure if this show was taped for MSG TV. But moving on, the fabulous Moolah defended the NWA World Women's Championship against Vicki Williams. And then after that, Gorilla Monsoon defeated Blue Demon. And then after that, Terry and his father Dory Funk Sr. defeated the former WWF Tag Team Champions Mike Cicluna and Curtis Ayakea in the second of three What the Fuck Why Did You Book This matches of the night. Leading to the main event and the final What the Fuck Why Did You Book This Is This a Dream Match? WWF Champion Pedro Morales defeats George Animal Steel in 15 minutes to retain the WWF title. And for me why this show is worth mentioning is because during this time Dory Funk Jr. was still the current NWA World Heavyweight Champion, and about one week earlier, at Texas's Big Time Wrestling Parade of Champions event, Dory wrestled the owner, Fritz, to a 60-minute draw. So not only were the Funk family rocking and rolling wrestling right now, but it just so happens that that was Fritz's last NWA World title shot. And ironically enough on that 72 Parade of Champions, El Santo and Jose Lothario opened the show defeating Terry Funk and goddamn wouldn't-you-know-it Mr. Fuji in a tag match. So what happened, Fuji? And what really surprises me more also is that Dory Funk Sr. wouldn't return to the WWF for almost a full year before returning just to lose one more Vince McMahon Sr. booked match. And from this point forward, Dory Funk Sr. would go on to work a full schedule with 66 more recorded matches until his unexpected and unfortunate passing the next year at just 54. So it's like, holy shit, man. He was just going. As for Pedro, keep in mind, he debuted in 1970 for... Vince Senior, won the WWF US title shortly thereafter, and then went on to dethrone Ivan Koloff by early 71 to unify the belt with the World Championship. At this point, he'd already gone on to have a brutal feud with uh, subsequent cage matches with Freddie Blassie, and uh, feuding with all the tag team champions of that time. Like, Morales was teaming up with Strongbow, or Monsoon, or Sonny King to actually beat the current champions of the moment by disqualification on several occasions, in between defending the World Championship against the likes of Laz. Tanaka, King Curtis, Tarzan, Tyler, and Sakluna. But I don't think Pedro or Steele ever competed against each other before this. That's why I thought it was worth mentioning, so it must have been booked as a dream match, because for me logic dictates that this is just some random occurrence no different than how Pedro will go on to defend the world title against the spoiler and Pampuro Furpo later this summer. So what I'm trying to say essentially is that, in case you didn't know this already, every top guy gets pushed down our throats. It's just a matter of if we like the booker. Taste and style. And, you know, for the record, Morales would actually be gone by the company from 75. In 1973, International Wrestling Enterprise ran its 12th day of the big summer series in Toyota, Japan to a capacity crowd of 5,000 at the Toyota City Gymnasium, and shouts out to the Keeping A Strong Style podcast on the social suplex network for helping me out with this, because IWE was actually a pretty big deal in its day, a very popular competitor against the JWA, and then later New Japan and All Japan, and wisely enough, the founder of Zeo Yoshihara actually aligned himself with the AWA early on stateside. Okay. <laughs> and with Stu Hart Stampede Wrestling as early as 1973. Plus, IWE had a major television deal with NTV which provided them the opportunity to be Japan's first promotion to book cage matches, or bring in Gaijin like Ric Flair and Andre the Giant among so many others for the first time. And then they even produced so many stars throughout Puro history that New Japan booked the incoming IWE stars into the first invasion angle in wrestling history. So if anyone knows where I can find any IWE footage, hit me up because the earliest Ric Flair match I could even find was from 74 and this Sounds like some pretty groundbreaking shit I want to see. Anyways, the show I'm talking about was an 8 match card featuring Animal Hamaguchi defeating a 24-year-old Ric Flair only 7 months into his career and essentially forced to be here due to a working agreement. (laughs) Strong Kobayashi defeated Skandor Akbar. Mighty Inawi and Rusher Kimura defeated Buddy Wolf and Dick Murdoch. And then in the main event, The Great Kusatsu defeated Dusty Rhodes in a cage match. Alright, so uh, just a quick story I heard from earlier podcast. Keep in mind, this is second or third-hand information, so take it with a grain of salt. But basically, when Ric Flair was asked about paying his dues in regards to Leo Rush... Flair mentioned how it, in this interview essentially that being a rookie in Japan was fucking hell. Like, he was playing the role of young boy to Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch to the shittiest degree, in which Rick had to carry his own bags, Murdoch's bags, and Dusty's gear, all while following them around the hotels or to the shuttle buses. Rick had to sleep in a separate room from them, which he had to pay for himself. And then, almost all the while as a rib, Murdoch and Rhodes made a concerted effort to avoid speaking to Rick for fucking weeks on end. Like, these guys were here on a tour for a month, in which Rick had to wrestle 20 matches in 27 days, and he didn't even speak fucking Japanese. Like, fucking hell kid, you call that paying your dues? Enduring consensual slave labor and getting alienated from your English speaking co-workers in a foreign fucking country? I mean, I I am all for the belief of paying your dues in the workplace, but come on man, that is extremely messed up, alright? Just transitioning the fuck out of that 1976, three different cities, three different federations. First, Bakersfield, California. Once again in Strellick Stadium, brought to you by NWA Hollywood. A four-match card with little footnote being Butcher Vachon and Gory Guerrero defeating a not so rowdy Ronnie Piper and Mr. California via disqualification in a tag match. Then over in Amarillo, Texas, for the Western State Sports out of the aptly named Sports Arena, <laughs> the main event of the five-match show saw hometown boy Terry Funk defending his NWA World's Championship against the Super Destroyer in 41 minutes. And finally, All Japan Pro Wrestling Summer Action Series Night 1 from Nagoya, Japan with 1900 attending the local gym just to see AJPW owner Giant Baba teaming up with Jumbo Saruta to best the Sneaky White Devils, Scott Casey, and Billy Robinson in a 2 out of 3 falls tag match. Now I'm skipping over to EMLL 1978. I don't really believe that this was a, a one match card. However, there was clearly only one noteworthy match worth writing about in the history books. Monterey, Mexico. The presumed main event saw El Nazi beating Raul Mata for the EMLL Mexican National Heavyweight Championship. I don't even know what happened, but he'd only hold the belt for four months and then after he'd lose it, he'd never win another championship again in his entire 30-year career. Like, I even have it written down here, and I quote, his finishing maneuver was actually called the swastika. What the fuck, Mexico? End quote. (laughs) 1979. Two events from the United States, first off with the AWA drawing 5,248 at the Brown County Veterans Memorial Arena in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Four matched cards starting with Paul Ellering and Jesse Ventura going to a 20 minute draw. Next the Super Destroyer Mark II with manager Lord Alfred Hayes defeats Billy Robinson in 1521. by the way, that destructive little boy grew up to be none other than the future thief of valor, Sergeant Slaughter. Next, Vern Gagne's son Greg Gagne defeats Ray Stevens by disqualification, and personally I figure Ray probably said, "The hell with this Vern, you put him over yourself, he's worse than green, he's pale, but then Vern theoretically retorted, well Ray, I've been in this business for 20 years, I've been booking these shows, training these boys, and working on the main events, I don't have time to spend getting him over on my level. And speaking of which, in the main event, <laughs> and speaking of which, in the main event, AWA yeah. tag team champions Maurice, Mad Dog Vachon, and Vern Gagne retained over the team of Cowboy Bobby Duncombe and uh, Nick Bockwinkle. Like, holy shit. And over in Florida, still on the same day and year, NWA's Championship Wrestling for Florida held a cool card from Orlando that saw the forgotten sweet brown sugar. Team up with the original Briscoe brothers, Jack and Jerry, to defeat Joe LeDuc. Killer Khan and Sonny King in a six-man tag team match. Dom Morocco would then go on to defeat Mike Graham after that and the NWA Florida heavyweight champion King Curtis defeats Jimmy Garvin in the co-main event. And the clear-cut draw of that night was was the NWA world's champion Harley Race defending and retaining the belt over Steve Kern via disqualification. In a classic example of a heel maintaining that heat brother. Now this next card is pretty interesting when you look at it on paper at least because on July 1st of 1980 I actually found a joint promotion show from New Japan and Stampede Wrestling in Obohiro, Japan, in uh, the City General Gymnasium, amongst about 2,700 fans, give or take. The show actually opened with Junji Harada defeating Hiro Saito, which some of you may know Hirata as the Black Strong Machiner, Sunny Two Rivers, who is one of the forgotten contributors in the famous 83 Stampede Riot, but you know, more on that later. Next, we had Shoji Kai defeating the young lion Akira Maeda, and then after that, Makoto Arakawa defeated the Canadian legend George Shikano, who some of you may I actually know as the WWF Junior Heavyweight Champion, the Cobra. Then Keith the Forgotten Heart actually defeated Yoshiaki Fujinami. Then after that, fucking strong Kobayashi defeated Rip Oliver during his, uh, Gustafo gimmick. After that, Ricky Choshu carried a relative newcomer, Bad News Brown, to a double countout. In the mains, Antonio Inoki, Kantaro Hoshino, and Seiji Sakaguchi actually defeated the team of Bret Hart, Johnny Mantell, and Tiger Jeet Singh in a 2 3 falls 6 man tag match that saw Tiger Jeet get his team DQ'd in the first fall, and then the match turned to a literal pure 6 brawl leading to Anoki's team getting DQ'd in the second fall, but then Anoki actually pinned Jeet to continue their on fucking stoppable rivalry. And just for those that don't care, their feud actually started in 1973 and would go all the way on until 1981, brother. And if you're keeping track... This was the hundred and sixtieth match out of their 219 match feud Meaning there's still another fucking 59 matches to go in the next two years Jesus Christ and by the time I get into the Stampede series or cover Stu Hart's career I'll hopefully let you know when the working agreement started because honestly I am more familiar with Brett and Owen's careers than any Japanese Federation's history in specific or any working agreement But what I can tell you though is that sometime either in the early 60s when Anoki was just starting out and went on excursion, or in the early to mid 70s after Anoki left Ricky Dozan's promotion to form New Japan, he wasn't initially accepted by the Canadian promoters of that time for some unexplained reason, and I'm not exactly sure when that period was. So I apologize if that doesn't even matter to you. But why I mention is because aside from one initial match from Maple Leaf Wrestling TV where Inoki actually defeated Tiger Jeet Singh for the PWF heavyweight title in Montreal, I couldn't find anything on Inoki working anywhere in Canada until his Stampede matches in 1979 But that talent exchange between the aforementioned IWE and Stampede actually came to an end. And with that, somewhere along the way, Stu and Antonio met and did some business together seemingly not long after. And also, I guess it's, fuck it, it's worth mentioning that Inoki may have already beaten Tiger Jeep for the PWF title in Japan prior to the Montreal match, so I don't actually know what the fuck that was about. Like, seriously, are Phantom title changes just a, a, an old-school wrestling trope or a Japanese wrestling trope? Regardless of the case, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, 1982 at Norfolk Scope in Norfolk, West Virginia. Seven-match show with uh, three matches actually worth mentioning. First being Wahoo McDaniel, if you had noticed by now, he's one of my favorites. He kicked the shit out of Sergeant Slaughter. Then after that, Jack Briscoe defeated Roddy Piper. And yes, he actually defeated him. So, wherever this fucking 10, 11 year undefeated streak of not getting pinned came from, some bullshit and finally the NWA world's heavyweight champion Ric Flair retained the belt over Jay Youngblood in Jay's last NWA world title shot now this was during the time of Rick's legendary first reign that kind of technically comprised of five reigns so maybe this was actually a second reign but who really cares because in his technical 635 day first reign he wrestled exactly 400 world title matches starting with his win over Dusty Rhodes and ending with his loss to Harley Race Because listen to this quickly, in just the month of July of 1982, Ric Flair defended the belt 26 days out of 31, and listen to this. July 2nd, the next day, Rick defends against Jake Roberts at the Richmond Civic Center. The next day after that, Rick defeats Wahoo McDaniel at the Greensboro Coliseum. Then on the 4th of July, he wrestles a double countout with the WWF champion Bob Backlund, which was a unification match at the Omni in Atlanta. Fucking Flair defends the title against the likes of Tommy Rich, Mr. Wrestling 2, and Dory Funk Jr., before he actually goes on to retain the bell over Ricky's Steamboat in Ottawa for Maple Leaf. For Christ's sakes, this was all in the midst of a hellacious feud with Butch Reed in Florida that saw three 60 minute draws and a fucking cage match, and all of that happens in just one month. I don't care what your scale is, you gotta appreciate the fucking greatness of Ric Flair. And I'm not trying to take anything away from all the other people of that generation and of those eras that had to work those kind of schedules, I'm just saying, nobody did it quite like Nate. 1983, seven-match card from Stampede in Calgary, but it's only noteworthy because the UK wrestling legend Giant Haystacks wrestled in the co-main event during his second one-month residency in Calgary. He never actually put anybody over while he was in Canada, and he only ever lost three times by disqualification. Like, that is just a master class worker right there. But it would actually be the pyrotechnical Puerto Rican Hercules Ayalea that defeated the Loch Ness Monster in just the similar fashion. But why this is really noteworthy to me is because today was the first time I could find in recorded history that the real-life cousin Tandem, later known as the British Bulldogs, teamed up for the first time ever to defeat the team of Cyclone Negro and the Cuban Assassin, who is actually also Puerto Rican. But seriously, now I actually gotta buy like the fucking pure dynamite book and find out how the hell this came to be because at this point in history, these two were on completely different career trajectories. 1984, no. Quite a bit of history, so, beginning with Joe Blanchard, short-lived Southwest Championship Wrestling, based out of the Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio, Texas, he promoted a pretty monumental show for its time today, featuring killer Tim Brooks defeating champion Bobby Jagger in a chain match for the Southwest Heavyweight title, and then after that, Eric Embry defeated Bobby Fulton in a scaffold match for the U.S. Junior Heavyweight title, and in the main event, Abdullah the Butcher and Bruiser Brody fought to a no contest in a bloody fucking main event that went all the way way around the arena. I could only find the last 5 minutes of the match and honestly it really doesn't look all that great by today's standards, but I think you'll enjoy Gene Kelly's commentary and the sound of the captivated Texas crowd following this punch, chop, walk exchange all the way to the backstage. Like, it's just five minutes, and it's even available on YouTube if you want to see it for yourselves. But staying on the topic of 1984 and the Blanchard family, according to cagematch.net, Mid-Atlantic held two events on 1984 on the same day in both the Carolinas. And I'm really genuinely willing to guess that this must mean that today must have been a Sunday. Anyways, in the main event for the Sumter County Exhibition Center, that event actually saw Ric Flair defend his NWA world title against Wahoo McDaniel, while The Charlotte Show saw Tully Blanchard retain his television title against Ric Flair via disqualification. And genuinely, if that's accurate, that's that's just pretty fucking awesome and shitty all at the same time. Now I'm gonna skip ahead to 1986, and if y'all are still wondering after all these stampede shows that I've already covered, what could possibly be the most Canadian thing that ever happened on Canada Day? Well sir, it's none other than a second annual Great American Bash Tour, powered by Jim Crockett Promotions and the Fat Man himself. (laughs) This was the first day of the tour hailing from the Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. And like most of the shows up to this point, I couldn't find any footage online. And yeah, I don't know if it's on the network. However, the Charlotte date of this tour is available on YouTube, and Jim Cornette did do an incredibly well-comprehensive deep dive on the entire 1986 Bash tour. That's my contribution to your society. Take it if you want it. They're both worth your while. I've, I've listened and watched both. Anyways, the highlights from day one include Wahoo McDaniel defeating Jimmy Garvin in the Indian Strap Match. Then after that, Baby Doll and the Rock and Roll Express defeat Jim Cornette and Midnight Express in a six-person intergender tag match leading to Nikita Koloff defeating Magnum T.A. to get the first victory in their best of seven series for the NWA US Heavyweight title. And if I actually remember correctly from the Cornette podcast, that series actually didn't conclude until after the Bash Tour ended. But finally, or not finally, but the Nature Boy successfully defends the NWA World Championship against Real Warrior Hawk by disqualification. (laughs) No, 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 my mistake, this isn't actually the last match, no sir nor madam. The main event of the Greatest American Bash had to have Greatest American Dream team up the animalistic road warrior, baby, and kick the shit out of those fake Anderson brothers daddy. Compared to its predecessor, Jim Crockett expanded the Great American Bash tour into an entire month-long tour across all the JCP hotspots. With the sell being that there would at least be an NWA world title match at every single event. Meaning Ric Flair was defending his GOAT status 13 times against the likes of the Road Warriors, Ron Garvin, The Midnight Express, and Nikita Koloff, Wahoo McDaniel, Dusty Rhodes, and if I remember right, legend has it that Dusty was actually supposed to win the belt over Ric Flair in Atlanta, but the poor turnaround at the latter shows made him change his mind and rebook the finish for the Charlotte show, being his third and final reign for just a meager two weeks. And the following year, for 1987, the third installment of the Great American Bash Tour would be taped for Mid-Atlantic Television over in Lakeland, Florida Civic Center at a sold out 5,000 seat venue. Once again, I'm going to redirect you to Jim Cornette who's extensively covered the 1987 Great American Bash Tour as well in great detail. Highlights from the show include Tully Blanchard successfully retaining the NWA television title to a draw with Barry Windham, Nikita Koloff successfully defended the NWA United States title over Lex Luger, however Lex would actually go on to win the title for the first time from Koloff just 10 days later in Greensboro, and in the main event, Dusty Rose defeats Ric Flair for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in a 2 out of 3 falls match to actually win the belt. But no, you don't actually have to know your history to understand that this was just a dusty finish and I'm fucking with you because Rick Flair was getting his ass disqualified in that final fall, and due to the NWA ruling, that belt can't change hands via disqualification. So if I'm not mistaken, I think this was the most successful year in JCP history, as Crockett was basically the head representative of the NWA, and I also believe this year he would later acquire Bill Watts' UWF as well. And I just mention it because I think it's amazing how one year will just make such a vast difference, because when we jump ahead to 1988's Great American Bash Tour, when that was coming around, they were all talks of selling to TBS since Turner Home Entertainment have been helping them get some of the Great American Bash shows on pay-per-view and VHS. Now this may have been the most grueling tour as the Great American Bash started on June 26th and didn't conclude until August 7th, meaning that there were 39 Great American Bash events and 7 TV tapings in 43 fucking days. And yes, guys were doing double shots as well, like fucking hell, no wonder that generation was so fucked up. <laughs> anyway, so the most notable thing I could find from the the fourth day of the 1988 tour included Dusty Rhodes defeating Tully Blanchard in an I Quit match, and this is fucking wild, because in the seventh ever War Games match, Sting, Luger, and the Road Warriors defeated the Horsemen in Arn, Barry, Flair and JJ Dillon replacing Tully. And as a matter of fact, there were actually 11 War Games matches on the 88 tour featuring Dusty and this tandem against some formation of the Horsemen. Just appreciate how brutal it must have been to do this real wild shit on a regular. And just for relevance sake, I think there are only three or four months more remaining of Jim Crockett before they would actually sell off Turner, effectively turning the show into WCW before the year's end. And finalizing on 1988. I'm taking us back to Canada just to quickly mention that Steve DeSalvo, who you may remember as the Minotaur in WCW, defeated Steve Blackman. Yeah, that's Steve Blackman. And Chris Benoit defeats Johnny Smith for the Stampede British Commonwealth Mid-Heavyweight Championship. The two spent much of the year actually feuding and exchanging the belt back and forth, but I mention it because there must have been some fucked finish on this day that isn't mentioned in the history books, because none of the title histories list Benoit beating Smith in Kelowna, BC on this day for the belt so I guess it's also worth mentioning that Steve Blackman will also have his last match at least one year to this day until 1997 because he was dying from malaria and he's practically bedridden for two years my god we are nearly done now you should know the gimmick I'll be right back after the break
6: you're spoiled Montreal this is why the rest of Canada doesn't like you You have beautiful women and strip clubs. I've been to Winnipeg. (laughs) They have Winnipeg. (laughs) Not quite the same. Being black in Montreal, it is like different. It's it's actually pretty cool. I like coming to Montreal because I don't have to deal with the same kind of racism that I deal with back home. In Montreal, they don't hate me because I'm black. They hate me because I don't speak French. It is different being black here. The black people in Montreal come from all over the world. That fascinates me. I meet people here from Africa, from Jamaica, from Haiti. It is fascinating to meet black people who came to North America intentionally. (laughs) That's a slave joke.
3: (laughs) We put the F.U. back in fun. Serve it up with a smile. You ain't heard this type of stuff in a while. I want your ears right now. Any up, buck, stop. here, put your hands up like you plan to volunteer. Ali, Ali, oxy free, fresh out of detox. Can't the doctor's fees, the floor is towards the weed spot. A whole city waiting for me to fall because I made a pretty
4: penny out of nothing at all. This, that circle, circle, dot, dot, we shot shit. You know everybody loving it, but ain't nobody touching it. Yeah, the taking over this year. I feel like dancing, baby, hold my fist.
3: Mess on the dance floor So let me get it so fast what we got here is for
0: My God, I do appreciate you guys sticking around with me this far. I do hope this podcast has provided you some sort of frame of reference to find a federation to deep dive for yourselves. Like, for example, 1990, the Dallas-Texas Sportatorium, just two months before the world class got into a legal dispute with USWA. We got one of the last conjoined programs by them on July 1st, featuring the rookie Steve Austin defeating Billy Joe Travis, barely 10 months into the business. Starving in his car, living off of tuna, potatoes, and razor blades. <laughs> 1991 WCW TV tapings from Macon Georgia Coliseum featuring squash matches like Steve Austin with Lady Blossom defeating Johnny Rich in 722 and Scott Hall as a diamond stud accompanied by DVP defeating the Blue Blazer in a forgettable 252 Meanwhile, the WWF was burned pretty hard over in New York as they only drew 8,800 on Madison Square Garden. This show was broadcast live on the MSG network, so I cannot stress enough that I do not have the WWE network, so I am limited to what I can dig up illegally. <laughs> so, if you look hard enough, you will find the entire show broken up into parts between YouTube, Daily Motion, and such and so. Matches do include Dino Bravo defeating Shane Douglas in The Curtain Jerker, The Dragon, formerly known as Ricky Steamboat, defeating Paul Roma, Jake Roberts with with Andre the Giant defeating the Canadian earthquake and in a real shitty main event that I do not endorse you seeking out, but it is on YouTube in its entirety if you want it. The Ultimate Warrior defeats The Undertaker in a body bag match. Uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, See Bruce Prichard's podcast, I think, if you want to know who booked this shit. But, um, WCW had two major problems that get overshadowed by so many other bad booking decisions and such resulting problems. Like, first off, Scott Steiner tore his bicep apparently on this day, and he'd be out of action, leaving his brother Rick without a partner and inevitably stripping them both of the tag team titles by July 20th. However, that pales in comparison to Ric Flair saying, To hell with you, Hurt. I'm out of here and I'm taking my belt unless you give me back my $25,000, you fucking pizza face. <laughs> like, the story goes is that Rick was relieved of his booking position for not putting over Lex for the World Championship and instead holding out on his promise to put over Sting for the world title. Flair had gotten right fed up with Heard's shit, as did Ross, Cornette, and everyone who's ever spoken of him. Well, allegedly Flair had asked for an exuberant sum of money from a historically money hemorrhaging company. So Heard literally just responded back with exactly half the number that Rick had demanded. and just like that wcw had lost its championship and its top draw its credibility all in one fell swoop although 92 actually wasn't all that bad in my opinion i think we can all agree that the Jim hurt era in general was some horseshit (laughs) and they should have paid flair whatever they thought he whatever he thought he was worth like that's why wcw had this horrendous circular strap that vader held instead of the big gold belt 1993, now this is awesome because this is just a cheap plug that I purchased Pain, Torture, and Agony so expect a lot more on Ron Hutchinson in the future But anyways, Toronto, Ontario's Monarch Park, Ron Hutchinson's short-lived developmental federation Fighting Arts, Mad Enterprises, holds its first-ever event on Canada Days Festival for Sweet Daddy Siki's graduates Now the card features a variation of seven wrestlers competing more than once so listen to this to Ginger Senga defeats Adam Copeland in both of their first ever wrestling matches. Then to Ginger Sanga defeats Sam Amarano in the next match. Then Adam Copeland, Rob Echevera, and Shane Gallant defeat the American Gladiator and Billy Johnson in a 3-on-2 handicap tag match. Coincidentally, this would also be Edge's second match. And then in the main event, Billy Johnson wins a blindfold battle royal over the other six guys that I've mentioned before. So Billy Johnson would actually go on to be one of Canada's best wrestling trainers and Joey Legend. If you weren't keeping track, Edge wrestled three different matches in his debut and apparently Christian was actually there watching him. And if I may, I would also like to read you a paragraph from Ron Hutchinson's Pain, Torture and Agony about the creation of fame. Now mind you, I will actually be reading from the Kindle version so I can't accurately tell you what page this is on, but you'll find this quote from chapter 12, Noodle Mania. Okay? Quote, I thought it'd be beneficial to the students if we could get them to work on school promoted shows. Every summer, Cannonball Tony Parisi ran shows on Canada Day weekend, and Siki had a long-standing relationship with Tony, so he said he would try to get the students booked. But with everybody wanting to work the CHIN chid and picnic shows, it was just not possible for Tony to book all of our students. Even some years, it was not possible to book any. See, at the time, there weren't a lot of independent promotions in Ontario, primarily because the provincial government required promoters to be licensed, maintaining a $1 million liability insurance policy and pay a 3% tax to the commission. That's not to say that there weren't promoters who ran the occasional shows without the commission's knowledge, but even though they were successful at times, they would occasionally get shut down by a visiting member of the Ontario Athletics Commission or the Ontario Provincial Police. See, local wrestlers were thrilled to get any shot they could with the quote, legit, unquote, promotions that they were dealing with. Chin, C-H-I-N, was a local multicultural radio station. All the local wrestlers in Ontario and even as far away as Montreal wanted to work at the Chin picnic shows. It was a good gig, and before the show, the wrestlers did appear on the Chin TV show performing in front of a huge crowd and were provided with free food and drinks on top. We eventually decided to book our own shows, I called the promotion fame and had business cards printed. I used the standard gym promo photo of Siki and I to advertise our new venture. Our first match was held at the 1992 Canada Day Celebration in Toronto Monarchs Park, the same event which Edge would make his debut the following year, as part of the 1993 festivities. I presented Siki with a nice plaque in appreciation for his commitment to pro wrestling training. In addition to the Monarch Park shows, we actually did a charity show for the Hillsburg Humane Society that we called Hillsburg. Heat. We didn't have enough wrestlers to stage the two-hour show, so we also added Sweet Daddy Siki's karaoke show on top. End quote. I love that. Well, hopefully nobody sues me for some goddamn digital. Redistribution bullshit for that. <laughs> Anyways, 1992, WCW's Great American Bash tour, day one from Macon George's Coliseum. This time only drawing a meager 1,200. That's fucking brutal because this actually looks like a wicked card. Check this out. First match: Johnny B. Bad defeats Scotty Flamingo, the Future Raven. Oh, and the Future Mark Mero. <laughs> he did a fucking Shooting Star press. It was pretty good. Next: Barry Windham defeats Steve Austin. Ricky Steamboat defeats Cactus Jack. Ron Simmons defeats Hercules Hernandez. The Steiner brothers retain the WCW World Tag Team titles to a 30 minute time limit draw with Dr. Death and Terry Gordy. And finally, Sting retains the WCW Heavyweight title over Arn Anderson. Wish that was on tape, man. 1994, Raw would tape three weeks of television in the aftermath of King of the Ring 94 at the 1600 capacity Fernwood Resort and Country Club in the fabulous downtown Bushkill, Pennsylvania. Lots of history to actually uncover at this event, like for starters, Jim Ross was actually hired back at this event from Smoky Mountain Wrestling to replace Vince McMahon who 26 years ago this week was acquitted in federal court from the Sahorian steroid trial. Now Vice actually did an article about it on 5 years ago I wanna say, that i, I actually recommend unless someone else has, like, done research since. But I strongly recommend that you guys go on YouTube or the network and try to find this WWF Raw show, which are episodes 70, 71, and 72. JR and Macho Man are fucking brilliant on commentary and just hilariously on point through the entire set of tapings. Like I didn't write down when these would air, but the highlights I'm mentioning are Crush defeating Jobber Matt Hardy in Matt's third WWF match, and what would be Crush's last match for nearly a year to the day. I actually think he got arrested for something stupid, I just can't remember. I didn't write it down and I didn't check Uh, a really great sleeper match from the IC champion Diesel defending against Lex Luger which as my notes read I actually went and rebooked the finish for some reason and perhaps the greatest wrestling match in Raw history in which WWF champion Bret Hart defended the title against the 123 Kid like this is a 5 star match if you've ever seen enough wrestling to judge the quality of individual performances. For instance, Rolling Stone Magazine ranked this 73 in the top 100 WWE Network Matches list if that means anything at all to you. Plus, this is the first match even I remember seeing on WWE Vintage Collection re-airing its actual entirety instead of just, you know, clipping it. Yeah, I'm not shitting you. Even I saw this match as a kid. Uh, you know, albeit 2008, but fuck it. I actually thought X-Pac might actually win the belt because I wasn't smartened up to who the hell was WWF champion before. Like, I strongly recommend you seek out this match more over any of the other Raw programs, enough so that in my notes from two years ago, I literally wrote blow by blow-by-blow <laughs> blow highlights of the match. I even wrote, quote, I don't think you could pull off a match like this without pissing off fans for letting the champion sell so much and wrestle so competitively with the job guy, end quote. Yeah, that was before I... even realized Ric Flair had been doing that shit for 12 years prior. Keeping in the realm of 1994 though, the infamous Smoky Mountain Wrestling held an event in Knoxville, Tennessee on this day to only a 700-seat audience. The matches though did include Lance Storm and Chris Jericho, the Thrill Seekers, defeating Well Done in a tag team penalty box match. What the fuck is a penalty box match? One second. Google.com Penalty box wrestling match. One second. It's just loading. Huh. I'm actually curious. What the fuck is a penalty box wrestling match? Man, I gotta edit this because this is taking way too fucking long. <laughs> yes, a pen. Ontario reports 70 new cases of coronavirus, marking the lowest increase since March. I... I don't know if that's good or not. World Tag Team Title Penalty Box Match WCCW November 14th. Okay, so... Okay. Okay, I'm just gonna have to put this in. (laughs) Quote. Penalty boxes were awesome matches back in the day. I actually wish they would bring them back. It was usually a tag team match where someone got caught cheating and they would go in the penalty box at ringside for a minute or two. If done correctly, it was very good. End quote. Holy fuck, I'm sorry for coming unprepared. That was a fucking waste of time. Like, I might actually have to check out one of these matches, but Jesus Christ, I am sorry for coming unprepared. Uh, Anyways, Terry and his brother Dory actually, I believe came into Smoky Mountain as Cornette's hitmen against Bullet Bob Armstrong, and this night saw them team up to defeat Bob's sons Brad and Scott Armstrong. And then later in the double main event, Tracy Smothers defeated Hamilton's own bruiser Bedlam in a street fight, and following that, the dirty white boy defeated Bedlam in a cage match to end the show. Talk about a fucking burial. Like, I gotta find out what's going on there. Any Smoky Mountain fans hit me up, man, like, mapleleafpod at gmail.com. I wanna know what's going on, and just a very odd note to add, Chris Jericho never actually lost a match in Smoky Mountain history. Like, this show marks him at 27-0. Wow, I really marked the fuck out on this list, didn't I? 1995! What a fucking privilege it is to be covering all Japan pro wrestling from Chigasagi Japan from the second day of the second annual Summer Action (sighs) Saturdays! And once again, I'll totally admit that I am Really not well-versed in All Japan or any Japanese wrestling history. But from what I've seen in the past year, and in my opinion at least, 90s All Japan really is the greatest example of professional wrestling ever. And it's truly debatable what the best in-ring year of competition may be. But if you just keep in mind how fucking god-awful WCW and WWF were at this time, you'll have an easier time digesting and suspending your disbelief in AJPW, who is just killing it this year, y'all. Like, unfortunately for the marks, I couldn't find any footage of the show online, nor could I find that 5-star Meltzer rated 6-man tag match that occurred a day prior on June 30th. But nonetheless, the highlights from the show from the vegetable and fruit market included AJPW World Junior Heavyweight Champion Dan Crawford and his partner Doug Furness defeating Izumita and Amori. and for the record, Amori was at the time one half of the current All Asia Tag Team Champions. After that, Johnny Ace and the Patriot defeated Honda and Next. А.Семкин Корректор А.Егорова Stan Hansen and the K-Fabe cousin of the British Bulldogs, Johnny Smith of Stampede Wrestling fame, defeated Chris and Mark Youngblood. And in your main event of the evening, some may say the most dominant faction in all Japan history, the Holy Demon Army, consisting of Yoshinari Ogawa and the All Japan World Tag Team Champions Akira Taue and Toshiyawa Kawada, defeated the team of Satoru Asako, Jun Akiyama, who is the other half of the aforementioned All Asia Tag Team Champions, and the All Japan Triple Crown Heavyweight Champion Mitsuharuma,
5: As the rift between Douglas and Cactus widened, a war began between Terry Funk and Cactus Jack culminating at Hostile City Showdown, and while Cactus gained a small measure of revenge by defeating Terry Funk, he was once again branded by the fiery native of the Double Cross Ranch. But the bigger story was to unfold as the seemingly impossible happened and the Sandman defeated the franchise for the heavyweight championship of the world. Douglas became infuriated when Cactus Jack accepted the challenge to be the Sandman's first world title defense in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and the franchise had his emissary. Crippler Chris Benoit and the shooter Dean Malenko interfere in the world title matchup.
0: Cactus Jack confronted the triple threat, but neither he nor the franchise would throw the first You and I.
5: You and I, have you want to add a cake, it's Jack. Long enough. Douglas volunteered to be the special guest referee when Jack is in Sandman, again in Tampa, Florida and disqualified his best friend for a minor rules infraction. Jack's ignoring Franchise getting physical and Jack just shoves him out of the way. Oh, come on. Let the Let me ring the bell for a run. That was a quick count. While Douglas is disqualifying the Sandman. Ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate his decision. He has disqualified practice check. While Douglas has stooped to an all-time low and he has definitely. Lord, how powerful, just how powerful, how a referee can be! Douglas then brought in referee Bill Alfonso to implement the rules in ECW! This led to yet another near physical confrontation between Douglas and Cactus Jack, who were both pursuing the Sandman for the World Heavyweight title. Cactus had Sandman beat in a World title matchup when Shane ran down the ringside and put the Sandman's foot across the bottom rope, breaking the count. That very same evening, the game of one-up and shit began when Cactus Jack knocked Shane Douglas's foot off the bottom rope when the Sandman had him in a pitting predicament in their World Title matchup. Come on! One, two, there's Cactus for three! Referee Bill Alfonso claimed to have seen the whole thing and attempted to restart the matchup. Again, it's for the World Heavyweight title, but this time it's a barbed wire matchup!
0: Sticking around for a minute longer in 1995, since, you know, it is the year of our lord after all. Over in Philadelphia, the world-famous Bingo Hall Sweatbox, ACW held its Hardcore Heaven event to a full crowd of either, you know, a grand or twelve hundred depending on your search engine. I actually reviewed this show in great detail since I'm marked for the, uh, extremities. So for what it's worth, here's what uh, I'm gonna include. The Dudley Boys, minus D. Vaughn, Bubba Ray, and Spike actually debuted on this night in a losing effort against the Pitch. Now, I admit this was a pretty shitty match, but I think it's notable because Raven and Stevie Richards actually defeated the Pitbulls for the ECW Tag Titles at Cyberslam the day before. So Stevie actually came out to distract the Pitbulls in this match, where you'll see him interacting with his number one fan, the future Francine which instigates a jealous Beulah McGillicuddy to actually attack Francine out of nowhere, inciting Joey Styles to deliver his signature maneuver in the opening match. That's right, y'all. We get a catfight. And then after that, Raven and Stevie would actually just come back out to defeat Tommy Dreamer and Luna Vachon in this outrageous intergender tag team match. Uh, just, that's what- Okay, kinda check it out, unless you actually want to see a good match. Then I don't recommend it. After that, Too Cold Scorpio defeats Taz in a fucking awesome match, that I do recommend y'all seek out. It is, it's just fucking awesome. And unbelievably 25 years ago on this day, the famous Taipei death match between the Kayfay brothers Axel and Ian Rotten occurred. You see, what happened was they lost a tag team match that wouldn't allow the bad breed to ever team up ever again, which would lead them to turn on each other and have one of the all-time classic ECW matches with fucking Bill Alfonso as the hilariously trollish referee. Like, I have to admit that Axel... Russell Rotten does defeat Ian Rotten in this because that's the gimmick of the show, but I still highly recommend you guys check this match out if you've never seen it. It is on YouTube. In the co main event, the Sandman actually defeated Cactus Jack when Shane Douglas interfered and turned on fully in the final fuck you to the ECW audience. And in the shit show main event, the public enemy defeated the gangsters in this walk and brawl across the arena tornado tag team match. The crowd loved it. It didn't hold up well for me. But you can find these on ECW Hardcore TV episodes 115 and 116 if they're on the network. However, I'm just going to play for you the promo package. Just so you can understand the rivalry between the world Champion Sandman, Cactus Jack, and Shane Douglas right now. Because Shane was actually leaving for WWF again. And this time becoming Dean Douglas. And honestly, I think this is some of his best work in ECW. And it's a shame that I don't think he'd ever really regain this type of aura that he had right now like this is in the period where he had that famous triple threat match between Terry Funk and Sabu so it all goes downhill from here man 1996 WCW Monday Night Nitro from the U.S. Air Arena in Landover Maryland exactly six days before Bash at the Beach 96 and without any hyperbole, this is without a doubt the last week of the bygone era before we transition into the ratings-oriented attitude era that breaks all the rules and traditions laid down by the keepers of kayfabe. Something nobody talks about is that Larry Zabisco name-drops the NWO three fucking minutes into the program.
7: The countdown is on to WCW's bash at the beach! Where, ladies and gentlemen, all the talk of the wrestling world has been centered on one event, and that is, of course, Daytona Beach and the Ocean Center, the hostile takeover. We are not too far away from that big six-man tank. Well, you know, thanks to modern technology via satellite communication. The world is hey, hey. becoming a small wait, place. Wait, there wait, 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 will wait, be a hey. new world. Wait, what? 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 I'm talking here. Remember that these two gentlemen are here once again here on WCW Monday Night Show. We can only wonder, Larry, will their third man be with them here tonight? Well, that's the question. You know, a lot of rumors flying back and forth. No one seems to know exactly what's going on. We will find out. Like I said before, there will be a new world order this Sunday in professional wrestling.
0: You talk about foreshadowing, that's some fucking foreshadowing, like highlights include Harlem Heat retaining their newly won WCW tag team titles over the Steiner brothers who got screwed out of the belts last week due to Hall and Nash interfering and causing a distraction. After that, Disco Inferno buries Monabu Nakanishi because fuck the sport of professional wrestling. Randy Savage then goes on to defeat Greg Valentine 15 years too late, and the Giant defends his big gold belt against John Tenta in John's very last world title match. And in the televised main event, the Four Horsemen defeat Joe Gomez, the renegade in the Rock and Roll Express in a match I didn't even bother watching at all. The Four Horsemen at the time did consist of Arne Anderson, Ric Flair, Chris Benoit, and Steve Mongo McMichael. I mention it is because the dark match main event featured Bruno San Martino, guest refereeing a match between Randy Savage defeating Ric Flair to send the crowd home happy what the fuck WCW like nobody talks about that why did that happen ah fuck it Anyway, now then, 1998, Columbus, Georgia Civic Center. At least in my opinion, the most famous episode of WCW Thunder ever was taped on July 1st to air on July 2nd. And I'm not saying it's a great episode by any means. If you watch Thunder, you know exactly what Thunder fucking was. But this actually featured two gems from episode 23.
7: As a matter of fact, tonight, the WCW office wanted to put me on last, the last part of the show, but I said, sit on it, office! I'm going out first, because my fans want to see me first, and you deserve the best! Yes, you do. Now, for the last little while, you've seen Dean Malenko running from me at all costs, at every opportunity, And Jojo Dillon told me that I have to face Malenko at Bash of the Beach. But is this a man that you want to be seeing a belt around his waist? Is this a man that you want to be a role model for your children? I don't think so. I've been trying to get a match with this guy. He's been running away. He's been high talent all over the place. You people don't deserve that. And you people don't even want to see that match. Boy, he's goofy. Dean Malenko is not the man you think he is. He's not. As a matter of fact, poor little Ultimo Dragon comes out to try and help me and ends up with a concussion from a vicious attack by Dean Malenko. Get the hook. Long time ago, get the hook. So he can't even fight tonight. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring a man out here, a man that I flew in with my own personal money, a man who we haven't seen in six months, a man who is a victim of a terrible and tragic injury to his knee. Tonight, you're going to see a classic match, a five-star classic that all you internet geeks and all you sheet readers can go crazy about. Tonight you're going to see a classic battle, similar to a classic battle between Moby Dick and Captain Ahab himself. You're going to see a match for a man who deserves to be the number one contender. A man who, if he beats me tonight, will get a shot at this belt at the Bash of the Beach. A man who's been training, a man who's in the best shape of his life. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you, Ray
5: Mysterio Jr.
7: Haven't seen him for a while.
0: The first being WCW Cruiserweight Champion Chris Jericho losing to a returning Rey Mysterio. Well, not exactly. You see, if you remember this period of time, this was when Jericho was actually feuding with Malenko, and he actually made the fucker snap and show some emotion for once. So now that Chris Jericho's afraid of Malenko, he sets up a match with a midget wrestler who actually isn't really any shorter than Rey at all. It's fucking hilarious. Like, just seeing this for the first time. And after Jericho beats him up a little bit, he lets the little person pin him and declares that the injury. Rey Mysterio is the new number one contender at Bash at the Beach. I don't remember exactly, but I think Rey had an injured knee and he had been gone since January or February. Don't quote me on that. So Jericho's thinking that Mysterio won't even answer the challenge, but if you actually watch this segment, you'll see a lot of Sammy Guevara and Y2J here. And even further, it's like Chris is just continuing on his WCW gimmick today in AEW, like it's fucking wonderful stuff man. But even more important than that, this sir. This is the episode where JJ Dillon announces four days ahead of time of the Georgia Dome Nitro that Goldberg will be challenging Hulk Hogan for the WCW world title. And other than that, Booker T defends the television title against Fit Philly in an awesome match, but it's it's not that great of a show upon re-watching, but it's not entirely throwaway, I'll give it that. <laughs> 1999 though, if you were one of 900 people to attend an ECW house show in New York, New York, you would have seen Yoshihiro Tajiri defeat Super Crazy, Simon Diamond defeat Christopher Daniels, and the Impact players Justin Credible and Lance Storm defeat the team of Jerry Lin and Sabu in the main event. But now I'm going to cross over to the new millennium because Big Japan Wrestling and Combat Zone Wrestling had a cross-promotional feud at this time at its second annual Hardcore Series Day 4 event that saw Jun Kasai, Ryuji Yamakawa, Shadow wicks and the winger defeat god damn it defeat team czw's justice payne who is one half of big japan's tag champions and who also sadly passed away earlier this year in 2020 and his younger brother nick gage along with trent acid and former czw owner john zandig in an eight man no disqualification interpromotional tag team death match phew Jesus Christ. And finally, ECW's house show from Wichita Falls, Kansas, saw another small crowd of about 700. I just kind of found it notable because in the main event, Raven, Sandman, Tommy Dreamer, and Tajiri defeated Jack Victory, who most likely ate the fucking pin, and his partners, Just Incredible Rhino and Steve Carino. Again, I'm just mentioning it because this would have been Raven's final ECW house show match as he'd go on to lose to Rhino the week after on TNN and then make his spectacular debut for the WWE later this month all right crack the knuckles because we are almost done all right i've got maybe 20 more years to go through before we get the fuck out of here i hope you guys have at least somewhat enjoyed what i've been trying to do here if not i apologize and once again i strongly recommend don tony's this week in wrestling history show i i I appreciate that y'all are sticking around thank you It will never happen again. This was something I wanted to do two years ago, and fuck it, I just really wanted to get it done. Just for my own personal satisfaction. So, I'm sorry for anybody that really hasn't enjoyed it thus far. At least now that we're getting into televised history, I can actually do some more extensive coverage. I'll be right back, after this.
3: spittin' rap hits like Nickelback singin' with the diplomats written by Max Martin swingin' with the Wiffleback hear the pistol blast then I hit the track runnin' like a Kenyan cause I'm Kenyan ask my mama yeah I'm runnin' like a Kenyan see I'm runnin' like Obama on that ticket this is wicked as that Broadway play with the witches in it tell me who's the sickest kid I'm putting on a clinic listen you know no know I'm really, really touchin' the lyrics so it's touchin' when I'm touchin' on any subject I'm fearless they can't stomach it I'm lovin' it munchin' nuggets See the flow that's my zone don't let me even get near it please i'm ahead of my time wait now i'm ahead of the time Spit up ahead of the beat Time. Whenever I head to the meet, I'm always ahead of the heat. Head of my class, with glasses leaving these heads with a classic. Now let me just head to the back, head
0: the nap. 2001. The Wrestling Odyssey continues. Because one day before the infamous July 2nd WCW segment of Raw, WWF held a live event in Spokane, Washington. You know, just a house show. That saw WCW heavyweight champion Booker T defend against Buff Bagwell. And honestly, I only mention it because it's just crazy to me how in a matter of 24 hours. Vince got so pissed off over how shitty the buff match was, he scrapped all future WCW bookings and changed the direction of the invasion angle entirely, apparently all because of this goddamn Buff Bagwell character. Alright, keeping with the theme of Vincisms, 2002, the newly rechristened World Wrestling Entertainment has its 475th episode of Raw from the Verizon Wireless Arena in Manchester, New Hampshire. A really memorable night that may feel a little dated upon rewatching, but that's by my standards. Nonetheless, a great show in its day with some remarkable moments. To begin with, Paul Heyman and the next big thing, Brock Lesnar, address that 2002 will not be at the summer of Raw Van Dam, but instead the year of Brock Lesnar, and this is a response to the previous... Previous week's SmackDown where Kurt Angle actually defeated John Cena and Cena's debut as the open challenge. Heyman then declares an open challenge for Lesnar himself to anyone on the roster and that's how we got this less than flattering dream match between himself going over the Nature Boy. Also, after that, in a backstage segment, Miss Jackie and Molly Holly actually get into a fight over some Attitude Era trash about the Divas undress competition that was just a little before my time, thankfully. It ends with Trish Stratus interfering and pantsing fucking Molly Holly, revealing to the world that she wears granny pants. Anyway, she's the women's champion of the world, Vince. Goddamn, pal. That is not such good shit. Like. Then, in the most forgettable non title hardcore matches of all time, Christopher Nowinski, the former tough enough finalist, defeats hardcore champion Bradshaw to continue Chris's anti hardcore better than you gimmick. Mind you, Chris's career is over just a little over a year after this. Like, I remember he got that concussion in the 2003 Royal Rumble and he still went on after that. Like, that's fucking mental. Anyways, going back to backstage, RVD confronts the European champion William Regal, asking in a stonerish manner, such as my own where you can find Brock Lesnar and Paul. And to his surprise, Regal informs him that Brock and Payment have already competed and left the building, so Rob just challenges Regal to a Wrestlemania 18 rematch later for tonight instead. Backstage again! <laughs> but this time somewhere else. Terry Ronald still has this job somehow as she cuts some sort of underdog style interview with Jeff Hardy who's challenging The Undertaker tonight for the undisputed championship in a fucking ladder match. That's right y'all, tonight's the night. A match that Jeff Hardy has only won once in his entire career up to this point. Ironically, the No Mercy 99 ladder match called the Terry Invitational Tournament or something stupid like that. And yet, he has the audacity to say in this promo that he has the experience over The Undertaker and that's what it takes to give him the upper hand in this match. But he does have a good ender saying, I'm living in the moment and I'm not dying in it. Alright, fair fucks. Backstage again, also somewhere else. We get the greatness of Booker T and Goldust developing chemistry. If you look up Raw, July 1st, 2002, you'll see exactly what I mean. This is classic, and I don't want to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it, but for all things good, Vince still feels the need to inject his lethal dose of poison upon us, so we're still gonna have to endure that bullshit NWO wo four, Fo four, four, four life reboot. <laughs> That WWE had to make a fucking take two effort on, but more on that later. And in our fourth and final backstage segment, Eddie Guerrero is talking with Vince McMahon about opportunities. When Vince asks Eddie what ruthless aggression translates to in Spanish, Latino Heat says it's Eddie Guerrero. As Vince tells him that he did him a favor by bringing one of Eddie's best friends from SmackDown over to Raw, as we actually get the return of Chris Benoit, almost exactly a year to the day that he competed in that King of the Ring triple threat match. For Benoit got his neck all fucked up in that suplex spot with Stone Cold and Jericho. Stone Cold had to cover him on the fly, like as is my speculation at best, it doesn't feel right to me when I see that. Anyways, maybe less than a year removed from Benoit's neck surgery, Chris looks fucking ripped and I suppose this was supposed to be like a warm up match because Vince books the Dudley's against Benoit and Guerrero and that's that's exactly what we got. And with that being said, Bubba Ray and Spike actually defeated Eddie and Benoit in a pretty decent. Gentleman's three star tag match. I saw Benoit and Guerrero actually turn heel at the end by attacking them damn Dudleys and fucking Chris throw Spike through a table post-match that just looks sick. And even I'll admit everything I know about the Benoit family and how they died and seeing Benoit choke out Bubba at the end of this segment. It was like, dude No, no, no It's not the act of choking that bothers me, it's the fact that it's Benoit involved in it. You know what I mean? Anyways, after that we get a vignette for the soon to debut Rey Mysterio after we get another break and more shenanigans with Goldust backstage. Now with the unstable NWO leading this beatdown and sending Big Show out of the way to fucking fight the exiled Booker T, But before that, Terry is still standing in the same spot backstage, this time with the big dog, the dead man, the taker of souls. And she asks him what he thought of his upcoming ladder match against Jeff Hardy. He just completely ignores the question and plugs his world title defense at vengeance though against The Rock and Kurt Angle in some ass kicking fashion. I mean, like, he just completely neglects Hardy's challenge as we roll onto Booker T defeating the Big Show by countout by just kicking Big Show in the face who was holding some steel steps before Big Show could even attempt to hit Booker first, causing Big Show to actually fall backwards and have his head pinned under the steps for the 10 count. Like, just some awful, awful stuff. I'm not even gonna touch on what happened after this because I'm really disinterested in this NWO bull-ish. But essentially, after the match, Big Show lost... Shawn Michaels super kicked him, and it was just out of tough love. He wasn't kicked out of the NWO. Big Show wasn't being betrayed or anything. He was just getting bitched out. It's just amazing how in four months' time, he'll be repackaged and booked to defeat Brock Lesnar for the WWE title. Like, what the actual fuck? Who's booking this shit? And if you don't have the WWE Network, this show and the main event are available on YouTube, although the WWE version edits out some things like chair shots. Anyways, The Undertaker ended up actually defeating Jeff Hardy in the ladder match to retain the Undisputed Championship. And again, I didn't think too highly of this match myself upon rewatching it this time, but I know I've enjoyed this match at least one or twice times before on that Hardy Boys DVD. It's just I've seen too many ladder matches since to judge this match appropriately in its era. So for context's sake if you look at any fan made and website lists for Jeff Hardy and Undertaker you'll actually find that this match ranks somewhere on each and every single one of those and it's pretty highly. So I don't think it was one of the best Raw main events ever but a lot of people do argue it was one of the best Raw main events of its time in that point. Just trying to give credit where it's due. Like, if the Triple H match wasn't a a star-making performance for Jeff as a singles wrestler, this definitely was. 2003, SmackDown was taped from the Blue Cross Arena in Rochester, New York for July 3rd. If you guys more recently remember the frenemies' relationship between MVP and Matt Hardy in 07-08, that's what I could best compare this to. Now, I didn't start watching wrestling until, at least apparently, September of later this year when Angle and Lesnar had their Iron Man match on SmackDown. And I've honestly never really revisited 2003. So this episode was totally new to me and I just can't provide any context as to why Kurt and Brock are acting like best friends throughout the night. When they're already supposed to be fighting at Vengeance. They've already had their feud going to Wrestlemania. It's not a bad show. I'm I'm sorry but I, I recommend watching the weeks prior for proper build up because this episode is like being six weeks deep into some drama. Nonetheless, highlights include Rey Mysterio defending the cruiserweight title against Nunzio in a pretty decent six minute match. Benoit and Rhino then defeated the Basham brothers. Mm. Wow, there's two forgotten tag teams right there. And this next part is only about 7 minutes long. I don't expect anyone to actually go back and watch this. I also don't expect anyone to believe me when I tell you that Billy Gunn in 2003 was still more over than John Cena. And it's just so funny what a difference a year makes between 03 and 04. So, I'm actually going to play the audio of Billy Gunn versus John Cena in the third first round match for the United States Championship Tournament because it's just so funny to hear how the announcers used to talk about Cena before he was a babyface and again I'm not sure about my 2003 timelines but I think this was around the time that Cena and Undertaker were feuding and Cena goes in the cemetery and symbolically pisses on Undertaker's grave. (laughs)
7: With Billy man. Gunn so, versus Newberry, this man, weighing in at pounds. Yeah. Yeah.
8: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chill, chill, chill,
7: chill, 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 man. Undertaker spreading them lies to Orlando Jordan. It's not your yard. It's a prison, bro, and I'm the warden.
8: You can't see me. I'm a legend. You should pay me respect.
7: And if you're late on paying me, I'm going to come and collect. See, this should stop thinking about The Undertaker and concentrate on Billy Gunn. Hey, I'm not nervous because you got this weird fetish with butts. I'm scared because your favorite food is sausage and nuts. You can't handle the truth, Billy. You'd rather feel up Chuck. You don't want to wrestle with me. All you want is to word life Oh, you got so much in common with Billy Gunn. I can't believe this. All I know is John Cena better learn about respect. Billy Gunn is hopping mad after those remarks, hopping and John na- Cena is on the hop. you that? Oh, hopping mad. He's upset. Billy Gunn with a big elbow. You know, John Cena's in the back calling himself the veteran. He's in the ring of this matchup against a real veteran. A former 10-time tag team champion. A former king of the ring. A former intercontinental champion. Billy Gunn. Well, don't get on, so defensive for up. Billy Gunn. Jeez, relax, but... Well, you know what? I'm sort of sick and tired of John Cena, to be honest with you. Wait, I mean, aren't you shoelace? Yeah, I'm shoelace, but I'm uh, sort wait, of sick and shoelace? tired of John Cena. sweat Who are you? That's nice. I mean, John Cena goes out there. Undertaker's Dude. having a great moment with Orlando Dude. Jordan, giving the rookie some advice, and John Cena's got to ruin that moment. Oh, oh what a line by Billy Gunn. Here's the cover on John Cena, who gets the shoulder up. Again, again a cover, and again, Cena gets the shoulder up in this U.S. title tournament. Again, Matt Hardy and Chris Benoit have... Have already advanced in this tournament one of these two men will join those two as this oh. tournament continues well you know doubt about it John Cena's in there with a veteran Billy Gunn all in the side can get it done flat out in the middle of that ring it <laughs> this crowd somewhat partial there to John Cena Well, maybe this crowd doesn't like answers like Billy Gunn does as Billy Gunn it is rotten takes so it so. to Cena look oh. Billy Gunn! Oh. Oh, into the steel post. Remember, Billy Gunn only been back a couple of weeks after having rotator cuff surgery. Billy Gunn's going to feel like he's back on the beach there. Uh, if they're getting hit in the head like that, he's probably dreaming. He's Billy Gunn struggling to get back into the ring. And John oh, Cena again on the assault. And there's one thing about John Cena. When his opponent is wounded, Cena smells the blood and immediately goes to work as we take another look at Billy Gunn hitting the steel yeah, post. Watch Billy's forehead. Bingo! Right into that steel post. Ain't no giving that post. Nice vertical suplex floating over into a cover. Cover Hooks the leg, and Billy Gunn gets the shoulder up again. But you're right about Cena Cole When he has a weak spot in his opponent, bingo, he gets right on it. That's the mark of a guy that's got a big upside in this industry. And you got your opponent hurting. you got to go get it and stay on it. You see Torrey Wilson and Billy Gunn on. No secret now that there is some sort of relationship between Tory and Billy. That's the rumors running rampant in the locker room. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. And here are the elbows to the gun of John Cena. Oh, but again, Cena there. with authority. And now begins to stomp away at Billy Gunn. A very unorthodox style yeah. of attack for Cena, but effective. Cover again. Hook of the leg and a kick out. Yeah, and more obvious stuff, like, you know, tell me John Cena's a wrestler and that Tori Wilson is blonde and she's hot. You anymore any more obvious up. things to point out? No? Nah. Okay, just want to make sure. Thanks. Good
1: Jamie, talking. I'll
7: tell you, Nitty looked great in that coat, didn't she? Yes, yeah, she did. Nice beaver. It, it was a make. Oh. Right hand from Cena to Billy Gunn. And another right hand. The winner of this matchup advances in the U.S. title tournament. Again, the title coming back to the WWE, a title that began back in 1975. Look at the cover by John Cena, hook of the leg again, and Billy Gunn kicks out. John Cena, who upset with sparks on that count. Can't, you know, decide how fast the ref's going to count. I mean, are you going to put batteries in the guy's arm or something? Imagine the bragging that would be going on if John Cena won the U.S. title. Look at that. Sidewalk slam. Again, cover, hook of the leg of Billy Gunn who gets to the shoulder up. I mean, John Cena, be, he'd be putting himself in the ranks of great U.S. title holders like... Harley Race and Ricky Steamboat. See, yeah, those yep. guys were great. Call no bout, but it's the year two. No doubt, but it's the year 2003. John Cena's is the end. John Cena is, you know, John Cena is what it's about. He, I dig Cena. You know, I think some kids might dig it, especially the bad kids. You I, it. I like him. You're a nerd going tell me you like the Bee And look at this, John Cena to his feet as Billy Gunn delivers the elbow to the midsection of John oh. Cena. The veteran Billy Gunn trying to battle back in this matchup. See in this clothesline. What a slam by Billy Gunn. Well, it just takes one second to miss a maneuver with a veteran like Billy Gunn, a guy with the accolades that Gunn has, Whoa. and he capitalized it, Turn the point in the match right now. Both athletes hey. are down. You saw earlier on, Stephanie McMahon trying to... Get out of that handicap match today with Zach Gowan oh. against the Big Show, but oh. this two-man wanted nothing to do with it. He's going to put his daughter through that battle hey, you tonight. You can't complain the way certain people raise their children, bolt. How about Sable rubbing it in? Oh. Oh. Well, line by Billy Gunn. You don't think Sable's got other ideas. Oh, she's would so, love to be in that general she's manager position. she a great gentleman. She's got an agenda. Oh, wow! Oh, oh. Here's the cover again. Hook of the leg on Cena. And Cena just gets the shoulder up. I guess the best way to talk about Sable would be to say she's... Opportunistic, I think so, and very hot. Yeah, look at this. nobody oh, for Billy Gunn. Back to that ring post, face first for Gunn. Cena's gonna capitalize. Oh. Well, John Cena calls that the throwback. Oh. Here's the hook oh. to the leg on Billy Gunn, who gets the oh. shoulder up. I heard that in the hood, the oh. throwback. Yeah, you're a real hoodie. Yeah, well, Cena, you talk about all those great U.S. champions of past like Harley Race and ricky Steamboat. Those, could be a throwback, but he's got the. Kick. Well, John Cena has a chain. I he is. The Undertaker claims that everyone has to learn the hard way. I believe John Cena may be about to learn respect. John Cena. It's shocked that The Undertaker has driven a motorcycle out here! Well, just read Cena's lips, he said, "You interrupted you coming out to my yard. Cena so better be careful, trying to disrespect The Undertaker's yard." Second time The Undertaker's interrupted and a John Cena Billy Gunn roll well, and over! And Billy Gunn off the distraction! Advances in the tournament! Here's your winner, Billy Gunn! The distraction by The Undertaker! the matchup. Billy Gunn advances in the U.S. title tournament. Don't mess around with a veteran like The Undertaker. He'll play games with you. She'll have lost that game and lost the match and lost the opportunity to advance for the United States Championship. Billy Gunn advances. You think John Cena may have learned his lesson? I don't know.
0: After that, Charlie Oz and Shelton Benjamin defeat Eddie Guerrero and Tajiri to become the new WWE Tag Team Champions in a really great match with a fucking lackluster finish that just needed better timing. But at least Eddie turned heel on Tajiri after the match and suplexed into the lowriders windshield. And wouldn't you know it, Vince and Hogan couldn't come to terms on Hulkster's Wrestlemania 19 payoff. And Vince decided on this taping to impulsively book an impromptu firing of Hulk Hogan on air. It's just amazing how the American icon got fired on Canada Day in a taped show for the 4th of July. Like, that's wrestling as fuck. But what isn't wrestling as fuck is this convoluted mess of a main event featuring Stephanie McMahon and Zach Gowen defeating the Big Show in a two-on-one, quote, handicapped, unquote match. Literally, as Vince said. Jesus. Uh, An inexperienced woman from the boardroom teams up with a one-legged 23-year-old to cheaply defeat the world's largest wrestler and recently former two-time WWE Champion. And for what? So Gowan could get a fucking two-month contract extension and be out of here faster than Colin Delaney or James Ellsworth? Cornette's right. Get the fuck out of here with this nonsense. Moving on to 2004, Pro Wrestling 0-1 from Fukui Japan's city's gymnasium to a 1700 crowd. Admittedly I'm not sure if this was when Shinya had a working agreement with Ring of Honor at MLW, but noteworthy matches did include Masato Tanaka defending the 0-1 United States heavyweight title against Brian Kendrick, and then Shinya Hashimoto teamed up with Tomohiro Ishii and Tatsuhita Takaiwa to defeat the Ring of Honor alumni of the SATs and a Canadian wrestler named Jason the Legend who I've never fucking heard of before. I just wanted to mention it because Shinya Hashimoto would only wrestle for another month until the end of August when he'd be forced to retire due to heart problems and even more tragically 375 days after this match took place he'd pass away from a brain aneurysm. Like seriously you guys, I highly recommend you all seek out some Shinya Hashimoto matches from New Japan because you have to see him to believe him to understand why he's one of the greatest legends in all of Japanese wrestling history. 2005, Ian Rotten's IWA Mid-South holds its Catch a Star event in Salem, Indiana's National Guard Armory featuring in the main event Ring of Honor World Champion CM Punk defeating Matt Seidel in 17 minutes. It definitely could have been better but Matt Seidel was wrestling in the match under the weather and at the conclusion of the match when CM Punk actually tries to go to hug Matt, Seidel actually throws up and nearly falls out of the ring and god forbid if you want to see it, it's on YouTube for yourselves. I mean it's, it's a dude throwing up and it's not the greatest match ever, but CM Punk does get all smug-like in the face of the camera lens after, and he says he literally makes people sick. Like, what a heel. God, I love him. Still over in 2005 in Louisville, Kentucky at the Six Flags Summer Sizzler Series on the same day. God, I hope that microphone filter worked for that. OVW's Nick Nemeth defeats Paul Burchill in the show opener. And in the double six-man tag team main event, Gunner Scott, Elijah Burke, and Eugene with Jim Cornette as their manager defeats star maker Boland's team of blaster Bobby Lashley and Mike Mondo in the future Kenny Dykstra of the fucking Spirit Squad. What an obscure tandem. But in the main event, the Dudley boys and the future Kalen Groff defeat Ken Kennedy, Chad and Tank Toland. And yo, were they, were they the dicks or the heartthrobs in WWE? I don't, I don't even remember them. 2006, the short-lived Who Gives A Fuck About Chapman Promotions held an event in Ware, England in front of only 170 people at the Drill Hall in the Summer Legends Show. Most noteworthy because 19-year-old Rebecca Knox defeated 34-year-old Sweet Soraya Knight in their first ever encounter. I just thought that was pretty interesting. Also in 2006, today was also the day that the ECW would effectively die, as Ron Van Dam and Sabu were pulled over going from West Virginia to Pennsylvania by a state trooper and arrested for possession of marijuana, drug paraphernalia, five Vicodin, and nine testosterone tablets, which is basically steroids. And that just, it just killed all of RVD and ECW's momentum and credibility dead in that moment. Just look at everything that happens in the months that come and the years that pass since. Alright, fuck yeah. 2007, Ring of Honor aired its respect Is earned show, taped on May 12th as its first-ever pay-per-view from the Manhattan Center in New York in front of about 1,250 people. I don't know if it's already on Honor Club or not, but I actually did buy it off eBay a few years ago for this project for like 25-30 bucks. The show was actually pretty fucking spectacular, to tell you the truth. Like, the show actually starts with BJ Whitmer's open challenge to the locker room, leading to uh, the Ring of Honor World Champion to answer the call, and then proceeds to have the greatest under-three-minute match I've ever seen in my life. It was so fucking fast and hard-hitting. The crowd was marking out from start to finish. Like, it's a joke to think now, but even as far back then, people have been saying Ring of Honor was the best wrestling on the planet. And sometimes, man... Sometimes it really fucking felt like it, it really was. Like for instance, the next match was Naomichi Marafuji defeating Rocky Romero in what felt like a really important match. And Marafuji just fucking kills Rocky with a spitting super kick that makes me mark out every time I see it. After that, your X-Division spot fest match of the, ne- uh, wait, no, wrong company, but you get the idea. The ROH Tag Team Champions actually retained over Cesaro and Matt Seidel in a go-do-what-you-have-to-do-to-get-over-Tag Team match. Like, I-I didn't even-I didn't even bother. This match just has that indie wrestling stamp of approval all over it. Although I'm disappointed to find out that the Briscoe Brothers have been doing the Redneck Kung Fu for over 15 years. Oh, shit, I should have mentioned, uh, the Briscoe Brothers for the Tag Team Champions. See, I started watching ring of honor in like 2012. I don't remember redneck kung fu being a thing to like what 2014 2015 Anyways after this match Kevin Steen and El Generico demand a title shot and the briscos actually call them out and saying if you want it Fucking come take it Lead into this big ass brawl that takes them all the way backstage. Oh goddamn I just remembered, they showed Roderick Strong giving ROH Booker Delirious a concussion at the 5th anniversary show, leading to a rematch beginning in progress after the video package. And despite some pretty sick wrestling and some stiff kicks and strikes, the crowd actually never got into this one for some reason. I thought it was awesome and I'd still recommend it nonetheless if you can find it, but here we are in the main event. Holy Christ, find this tag team match if you can. Brian Danielson and Takeshi Morishima, the Ring of Honor World Champion that just wrestled in the opener, defeats Nigel McGinnis and Kenta in 24-44. Let me just tell you why real quickly with the finish. Kenta leaps up to the top rope where Danielson is and hits this super twisting falcon arrow. One, two, no kick out. Unfucking real. Danielson gets up and nails a super backdrop suplex on the Kenta, but it only gets one, two, no. Then Danielson locks on cattle mutilation. Kenta rolls over so Brian rehooks his arms and starts giving Kenta some hard ass MMA style elbows to the head. Kenta will not fucking go down though as he fights his way to his feet with the dragon still elbowing him. He gets Danielson on his shoulders trying to go for the GTS but no. Danielson reverses and catches his legs. He goes under Kenta for the fucking tiger suplex, covers Kenta and Kenta still kicks out. Brian says fuck this and goes for Kenta's arms with one more cattle mutilation and it's over. Absolutely fucking breathtaking phenomenal match. Unfortunately we gotta transition though to 2008 Smackdown from Tulsa Oklahoma's Convention Center. This was also taped to air for the 4th of July but this was 2008 so unfortunately this is a very forgettable show. But a couple of the redeeming qualities happens to feature Jim Ross and Mick Foley on commentary which was my favorite short-lived dream team. Jeff Hardy defeating John Morrison in a decent match. Unfortunately, the first unveiling of the horrendous Divas Championship. Matt Hardy successfully defending the United States title in a fatal four-way against Shelton Benjamin, Chavo Guerrero, and Mr. Kennedy. And just in case anybody was confused with what year I was talking about, I'm still talking about 2008 here. Most memorably is actually the beginning of the show which opens up with MVP and the WWE Champion Triple H. The plot of the show is that they were making fun of Vicky Guerrero's husband Edge who had just gotten cashed in on by CM Punk on the previous week's Raw when Batista laid him out beforehand for the World Heavyweight title. That instigates Vicky to come out and book Triple H to defend his WWE title against Edge for the upcoming Great American Bash. I just want to share a clip of what Triple H said here. Because by 2008, I was growing up and all this shit was happening during the summer, so I was missing a lot of this PG-era wrestling bullshit between 2007 to 2012. And just hearing Triple H, of all people, say this actually made me pop. So I had to share this. Vicky Guerrero, let me just say,
8: I've been looking forward to meeting with you ever since I got drafted here to SmackDown. And let me start by saying congratulations on your upcoming wedding.
6: Well, thank you. I tell you,
8: that fiance of yours is some kind of genius. Marrying the boss to get ahead in business? Honestly. Who thinks up that kind of stuff? You know what I mean? And Vicky, I know. Weddings can be a lot of pressure and if the stress of the wedding is is starting to get to you, you know what? You crazy kids should just get in a car and drive to Vegas. Hey, I know a great little place, it's got a drive-through lane, it only costs like 40 bucks. And the beautiful thing is, you don't even have to be
0: conscious when you go through. And if I didn't mention before, the theme of the show was that every backstage segment featured Edge and Vicky Guerrero getting progressively more pissed off until Vicky would finally snap, stand up out of her wheelchair, and scream, get out. Like, I actually forgot how this storyline plays out honestly, and I'm hoping upon future revisiting that it's similar to Kurt Angle's fake broken leg angle, or hopefully something more akin to like Ray getting arrested in Trailer Park Boys.
1: Don't make me have to pick you up and put you in the cruiser, Ray. Well, what how am doing? I going
0: to
8: get there? Because I can't fucking walk.
0: 2011 who actually remembers Bass Brawl because TNA did it for three years and I sure as hell don't. From Coney Island, New York's MCU Park, InsidePulse.com actually had a correspondent write an on-site review of the show which features Ric Flair's meet and greet, Don West Schilling, and I quote, The best part was, no Bischoff, no Hogan, and no Sting, meaning no poor booking, (laughs) end quote. So, there is fan footage of this event still on YouTube, and according to this guy's review, the card was actually a very great live experience, with the likes of Eric Young, Orlando Jordan and Amazing Red defeating Douglas Williams, Nick Aldis, and the Robert Stone brand in the six-man tag team match. Mickey James defended her knockouts title against Angelina Love, RVD defeated AJ Styles in a Bound for Glory series match, and the main event, Kurt Angle defeated the TNA World Heavyweight Champion, Mr. Kennedy, Anderson, whatever, and a non title match and as a longtime TNA fan I would argue 2009 was the last great year but 2011 definitely was their peak in relevance 2012, two weeks after Dominion where Tanahashi defeated newcomer Okada to regain the IWGP title, New Japan and All Japan owners actually held a joint promotion show for their respective 40th anniversaries together. Now, I could not find any information on this show as it predates when the 2012 G1 Climax was and the King of Pro Wrestling event was, and I mention that because those shows were available to Americans through IPayPerView and this antiquated streaming service called Ustream. Neither could I find any footage or reviews. So I'm just gonna have to say it's available in New Japan World. But on July 1st, 2012, at a sold-out Ryugoku Hall in Tokyo, Japan, New Japan and All Japan presented the 40th anniversary Summer Night Fever in Ryugoku. Slash, we are pro wrestling love. I shit you not. That's literally the whole title above. The highlights I say worth mentioning are Canada's version of Stan Hansen and Big Joe Doring teaming up with Sonata to represent All Japan to defeat the New Japan team in Tomatonga and Tetsuya Naito in 1221. After that, New Japan's Chaos faction, consisting of Shinsuke Nakamura and Kazuchika Okada, defeated All Japan's Team of Destruction in Shuji Kondo and Suwama in 1430. Get it? Chaos reigns over destruction. After that, you may remember this guy, Aki Bono and Ryota Hama actually defeated Daisuke Sakimoto and Yuji Okabayashi for the All-Japan All-Asia Tag Team titles in 1235. Following that, Junakayama defended the All-Japan Triple Crown title against Taioke in 2326. And in the main event, Hiroshi Tanahashi defends the IWGP World Championship against fucking Toki Makabe in 2241. I would switch that co-main event with the main event, sir. Uh, three years go by before I could find something relevant that happened, at least in my eyes, but we're about to get into a clusterfuck of cards to end this show, so get ready, brace yourselves. 2015 Penelope Ford actually defeats Joey Janela in CZW's Dojo Wars 37 event from Voorhees New Jersey. Apparently Drew Gulak was the coach for the Dojo Wars events as well so now you know one more of the reasons why CZW wasn't maintaining popularity after 2017. And now starting with 2016 a WWE live event at the aforementioned Ryu Goku Hall only with this promotion they're only drawing 8,506 instead of selling out the 11,000 seat venue. If you believe Leave the internet but <laughs> this was the first time Asuka, AJ Styles, Shinsuke Nakamura, Luke Gallows and Karl Anderson would actually compete in the country working for WWE, merely six months removed from the Wrestle Kingdom 10 event at this point, in the men's case at least, Notable matches were Shinsuke Nakamura defeating Chris Jericho in under 20 minutes, AJ Styles beat up John Cena in 1747, and the WWE Champion Dean Ambrose successfully defended the belt in a 15-minute triple threat match against Seth Rollins and Kevin Owens. Hmm, makes you wonder if uh, Gato over there perceived Moxley as Vince's top star, and initially you'd think I was joking, but... In 2017, one year later to the day, once again in Tokyo's Ryugoku Hall, and once again drawing allegedly a lesser crowd than before with 8,318, highlights were Finn Balor opening in the show, defeating Chris Jericho in 15 minutes, Enzo Amore and Hideo Itami went to a no contest, and I swear to God, if Kenta said, I'm not doing the job tonight, brother, I would mark the fuck out, because that is hilarious that WWE perceived Kenta and Enzo fucking Amore as equals once. After that, Neville defended his cruiserweight title against Akira Tozawa and Austin Aries in an 11 minute triple threat match. Oh, and would you look at that, the big dog, Roman Reigns, and the death rider. Jon Moxley team up in a 22 minute match to defeat the Intercontinental Champion, The Miz and Samoa Joe. Yeah, yeah, Kato. I know you put feelers out there to coax Moxley over. I see what you did there. I see what you saw. And just to show you how fast times are changing, ironically also in 2017, but not in Japan, 2400 came to Long Beach, California's Convention and Entertainment Center to see New Japan Pro Wrestling's G1 Special in the USA, day one, just to crown the inaugural United States Champion. So I'm going to tell you what matters. War Machine, when they mattered, defeated the Gorillas of Destiny in a fucking awesome 11-minute tag match to regain the IWGP World Tag Team titles. Kazuchika Okada actually defended the IWGP title against Ring of Honor Champion Cody Rhodes in what turned out to be a pretty shitty match in 27-12. In the first round tournament matches, to determine the inaugural champion, Zack Sabre Jr. defeated Juice Robinson, Jay Lethal defeated Hangman Page, Tomohiro Ishii defeated Tensuya Naito, and the recommended match of the night, Kenny Omega defeats Michael Elgin. What a fucking match. And you know what, because I love him so much, let's just stick with New Japan. 2018, an awesome show that nobody talks about anymore. New Japan and Rev Pro Wrestling present Strong Style Evolved UK, and it's the second day that features a wicked double main event from Manchester, England's Ice Dome. In the semi-main, Zack Sabre Jr. defeats Kazuchika Okada in a match that holds up against their Sakura Genesis match. Like It's been long enough that some of you may have forgotten that this is just barely three weeks after Omega defeated Okada for the IWGP title. even more so, don't forget, 2018 was every much Zack Sabre Jr's year as it was Omega's. ZSJ was winning all the indie titles at Austin Aries hadn't, he was even booked to win the New Japan Cup decisively over Tanahashi, just fucking barely losing to Okada later. He has had three incredible matches out of nowhere with A-Kid, Walter, and Tomohiro Ishii all in the month of April, plus he put the fucking undisputed British Heavyweight title on the map. He later goes on to win Progress Super Strong Style 16 tournament and he wrestled a fucking barn burner against Jordan Devlin for OTT Scrapper Mania 4. I'm just saying, you you can throw a rock in any direction and hit a classic ZSJ grapple fuck from 2018. And after all that being said, the hardest hitting old man match I've ever seen was your main event. Noro Suzuki defeats Rev Pro Wrestling's undisputed British Heavyweight Champion Tomohiro Ishii for the belt in a match that far exceeds the status quo of what veteran wrestlers are supposed to wrestle like. Like, This match has an incredible fucking flow. Check it out. Oh, good lord, 2019 WWE Raw, episode 1362 from the American Airlines Center in Dallas, fucking Texas. Honestly, I do remember watching this show last fucking year, and yet I still don't remember shit about any of this. Like, I can't tell you if any of this was, like, during the Superstar Shakeup or if that was already over but I think this was that weird period of time where everyone would stop wrestling during commercial breaks, like as if they were already planning for COVID wrestling in advance. Genuinely, I'm not even going to bother looking up what happened last year because you can pick any fucking wrestling podcast you want just for this review. I sincerely only remember this as the first episode of Paul Heyman's Raw, if I'm not mistaken. And you know what? Actually, now that I thought about it, the reason why Braun Strowman vs Bobby Lashley went to a no contest in the first match should be because Lashley speared Braun through the entranceway and set off some shitty fireworks, which freaked out Corey Graves on commentary so much he just kind of exclaimed, holy shit, and then Wrestling Twitter just had a period over the commentator swearing. Like, get a fucking grip. It's almost as if people don't even watch anything but wrestling. Just ridiculous. But hey, email me at maybelliefpod at gmail.com if you remember 2019 better than I do and you can elaborate on this foolishness. Beginning with the new day, defeating War Machine by disqualification in 240, that actually sets up a six man tag team match with Kofi, Xavier, and Big E defeating Hanson Rowe and Samoa Joe in 715. Genuinely, I can't even remember if Kofi ever defended the belt against Samoa Joe, unless Joe is just doing some AJ Styles type bullshit like they did the year before. After that, Lacey Evans with Baron Corbin defeats Natalia in 330. Dude, what the fuck was with that feud? It went all over the place for like a year and it didn't make a lick of sense. Like, haven't these two already fought in Saudi Arabia? I thought they were friends now. But fuck it. The Miz defeats Elias in a 2 out of 3 falls match when Miz would get the first fall in 9 seconds, Elias got the second fall in 59 seconds, and then we got an actual wrestling match for a good couple minutes until Miz would pick up the win in 439. Seth Rollins and Becky Lynch then went on to defeat Mike and Maria Kanellis in actually 3 minutes and 30 seconds when Seth probably just curb stomped Mike in the vagina for the easy 3. And for fuck's sakes, Carmella defeated Alexa Bliss in 6 seconds? Hold on. Hold on. You hear that? That's my wallet. Hear that? I got a loony here. I bet you guys a dollar that this was the one where her shoelace was untied. I actually liked that and I thought that was clever as fuck, but... The rest of her concussion cover-ups were dumb as hell. (laughs) Anyways, Nikki Cross, playing the PG Mickey James, defended her friend's honor and beat Carmella in 245. And according to cagematch.net, your raw main event that nobody on the fucking planet Earth bothered to rate on this site. Ricochet defended his paper US title against the former and soon to be future US Champion AJ Styles. It would shit honestly be a goddamn dream feud like any other promotion, anywhere else, any other booker. Nobody else wants a fuck. Anybody else who wants a fucking job in this business would book AJ fucking Styles against Ricochet of all people at least halfway decent. But goddamn WWE just has to book these two so, so un fucking mercifully. You
2: know what? Fuck it.
0: Oh, my sweet Jesus. I need some real wrestling. And you know what? Fuck the notes. I, I really shouldn't have added those in recently. And I guess... Ah, oh, fuck it. Uh, I think Drake Maverick won the 24-7 title, but I went and threw away my notes because I really don't give a rat's ass anymore. You know what? This just happened this year, so fuck it. Finally, pick your podcast to look hard enough online, and you should still be able to find 2020's recently passed contributions to Canada Day proper. I'll recommend you to Matthew Mayer, LOP's Implications, because he does a great job over here on WrestlingHeadlines.com, but there's also All Things Elite and One Nation Radio from the Social Suplex Network if you feel so inclined, and Voices of Wrestling Network too. Or even Jim Cornette, if you aren't already in the loop with his bullshit. But, uh, starting with AEW, I think that they taped, uh, a dark. One second. Here we go. Starting with AEW, tape for dark, where Sean Spears defeating Brian Pillman Jr. in 512 and Frankie Kazarian defeating Dr. Luther in 647. Leading to AEW Fighter Fest from Daly's Place in Jacksonville, Florida. Attendance... Roughly 20. <laughs> Matches! Jurassic Express defeats MJF and Wardlow in 11 minutes. Hikaru Shida retains her AEW Women's World Title against Penelope Ford in eleven eighteen. Hey, that's my birthday. <laughs> Cody then successfully defends the Dusty Finish and his TNT Championship against Jake Hagar in a pretty good match that turned into some BS ending. Mark Quinn and Isaiah Cassidy defeated Santana and Ortiz in a pretty goddamn good tag team match. And in a fucking awesome main event, Better enemies Kenny Omega and Hangman Page retain the AEW tag team titles over good friends Chuck Taylor and Trent Perretta. And finally, ending on today's episode of NXT, the Great American Bash themed episode from the Performance Center in Winter Park, Florida. Keegan Knox actually won a 20-minute fatal four-way elimination match to determine the number one contender to Io Shirai, when she last eliminated that bitch Dakota Kai. Timothy Thatcher defeats Only Lorgan in yet another fucking awesome catches. thatch can match in 11 minutes. Then your man Rhea. <laughs> then your man Rhea Ripley defeats my boy Robbie E and my. Girl Aaliyah in a two-on-one intergender handicap match in about ten minutes. Dr. Loomis defeats mu- l- 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 Dexter Loomis, I mean fuck, I made it this far without messing up any names, and it's fucking Dexter Loomis that gets me to the end. Dexter Lumis defeats Roderick Strong Fuck off, Brody, In the main event a non-title inter-promotional dream match NXT Women's World Champion Io Shirai defeats Sasha Banks in 14 minutes And finally due to a technicality because week 2 was filmed after week 1 concluded The last match saw NXT North American Champion Keith Lee Defending and defeating record reigning NXT world champion Adam Cole in champion vs champion winner take all match. And personally, with all that's happened in the world in the recent months, I am genuinely happy to sign off on a high note that didn't leave myself feeling like disenfranchised with professional wrestling. And with all that being said, thank you everyone who's also wasted their time listening. I hope you've learned something or feel like digging through some crates yourselves. You can listen to my pilot if you want to learn how the gimmick works or even be a part of the show, or email me at maybelievepilot at gmail.com with any corrections. Or if you just want to hit me up with some show requests, you should definitely find out how the Red Circle gimmick works. But it kind of goes without saying if you're already listening to this on some platform. But yeah, uh, YouTube streamers, you can just download my shit instead on literally anything else. Or use iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM. Put a gimmick in a box and I'll pull out another platform to exploit. And for the fuck of it, I sold out and joined Twitter. So yeah, you can follow me on social media at MLW MLWHistoryPod. But if you want to shoot the shit, I write columns for LOPforums.com under the Christian name David k martin so if you want to read my show notes or hit me up just feel inclined to do so man join on in the conversation it's completely free and speaking of freedom until we speak again just remain calm keep strong and stay free everyone i swear i, oh, I feel you,
9: man. i've been working this shift and i ain't made shit. I wish I could buy me a spaceship
3: My manager insults me again, I will be assaulting him After I fuck the manager up, then I'm gonna shorten the register up Let's go back, back to the gap Look at my check, weren't no scratch So if I stole, what am I fault? Yeah, I stole, never got caught They take me to the back and pat me Asking me about some khakis But let some black people walk in I bet you they show off they talking blackies Oh, not enough, Kanye Let's put them all in the front of the stone So I'm on break next to the no-smoking sign With a blunt in the mall Taking my hits, writing my hits Writing my rhymes, playing my mind This fucking job can't help him So I quit, y'all welcome Y'all don't know my struggle Y'all can't match my hustle You can't catch my hustle You can't fathom my love, dude Like yourself in a room Doing five beats a day for three summers That's a different world like three summers I deserve to do these numbers The kid that made that Deserves that made back So many records in my basement I'm just
9: waiting on my spaceship I've been wow. Working this grave And I ain't made shit I wish I could Buy me a spaceship and fly Past the sky Oh, I've been working this great shift And I ain't made shit I wish I could
4: I didn't even try to work a job, represent the mob at the same time. Thirsty on the grind, shot state of mind. Lost my mama, lost my mind. Life, my love, that's not mine. Why you ain't signed? what in my time. Leave me alone, work for y'all. Half of this yours, half of this mine. Only wanna ball, never wanna fall. Gotta get mine, gotta take mine. Gotta check nine, reach my prime. Gotta make these haters respect mine. In the mall to 12, with my schedule, headset head nine. Putting no on shelves wait patiently i ask myself where i want to go where i want to be life is much more than running in the streets holla hey yay hit me with the beat put me on my feet sound so sweet yes i'm the same og same goatee stand OP. no holla god man why you had to take my Hope to see Freddy G. Yousef G. my G Rollie G. Police watch me smoke my weed and count my G's. Got a lot of people counting on me, and I'm just trying to find my peace. to should have finished school like mine is. and I probably wouldn't use my peace. <sighs> oh, pressure. I wish I could find me a